Hello and welcome to Shoot a Piano Player, a French New Wave podcast. And this is a uh, the second half and half episode of the season because uh, Joel has work stuff or something. I can't remember, but uh, so this is Contempt, which is I think the second Godard we're going second no second recorded third one that's going to go up uh, and. Um, Thankfully, someone uh, came along so that they can help explain to me, like, the whole Godard thing. And it's returning guest, uh, Dave. Hello. I am back uh, to discuss everyone's favorite French New Wave filmmaker, Jean-Luc Godard's Contempt. And, uh, yeah, Godard is one of those filmmakers that you either love him or you absolutely, uh, or absolutely despise him, or sometimes you do both at the same time. So it's... Uh, very interesting, and this is actually my favorite film of his, so thank you so much for having me on the podcast to discuss it. Oh yeah, I will, uh, uh, like, the listeners know, like, uh, basically Godard, Antonioni, like, those are the two big ones, I'm like, I want someone else on to help explain it to me, to explain, <laughs> yeah, I'm, like, why I'm missing. <laughs> I, I'm not crazy about Antonioni either, I, I, like, I get it, I see what he's trying to do, and I think that he's one of those filmmakers that's probably inspired other filmmakers to do other movies about loneliness and kind of that, like, isolation in this modern world maybe better. Maybe not better, but maybe in a way that I enjoy more. So I, I can appreciate what he's doing, even if he's not my favorite filmmaker out there. Whereas Godard, no, I take that back. Godard has inspired a lot of people that I really like. You definitely see a lot of his work and a filmmaker like Wong Kar Wai. But there's something just very undeniable and interesting and different and new and fascinating about his French New Wave period. Whereas kind of after that, he he definitely goes off the rails, both politically and in terms of how he approaches filmmaking to a way that they cease to be enjoyable in the traditional sense. And I mean, you have a lot of filmmakers of the era that didn't appreciate what Godard was doing. Like famously, Igmar Bergman said that Godard makes movies for critics, not for people. and. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. These things are very esoteric, very heady. There's so much of French literature kind of baked into all of it that in order to really understand what he was going for truly, you either need to have an advanced degree in French literature or just have read all the books Godard has has read. And uh, most people aren't going to do that. And with Contempt, I think it's very interesting because this is probably his most accessible esoteric film. Whereas something like Breathless or uh, Band of Outsiders, they're less esoteric, they're more digestible, they're more easy to just enjoy for what they are without kind of having that other background behind it. Contempt is a little bit like that, but has a lot of references to things like Homer's The Odyssey, obviously because it's part of the story itself. But we'll get into that, I'm sure, in the discussion. Yeah, so... um... I can't remember the first time I heard of Contempt. Like, it's probably when I first heard of Godard. It was, like, Breathless and Contempt were the two big ones that came up. And, um... Yeah, and so I kind of held off on watching Contempt for a long time. Because after I saw, like, Breathless and the Alphaville one and, uh... Another one, I can't remember, two or three things, maybe... I was like, yeah, I can I can just hold off on this. It's not essential <laughs> for for me. Yeah, yeah, I I can see feeling that way, especially after two or three things I know about her. That's uh, that's probably his most esoteric of the French New Wave films. 
yeah, like that one's coming up, and I, 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 I don't know how I will talk about that <laughs> with with someone else. But uh, yeah, uh, do you remember how you first heard of uh, contempt? So I was in film school taking a uh, European film class when I first heard of Godard in the first place. The film that we watched that day was Masculine Feminine, which I think is a very interesting film to start with for Godard. But our teacher liked to show clips from other films that Godard had done. And one of the clips he chose was the first scene where we meet Jack Palance's character uh, in Contempt, where we just see this brash American producer uh, pulling out this like tiny tiny book and reading passages from it trying to be this uh phony intellectual and it's just so jarring and different oh and he also showed the opening credit sequence which is very interesting in this mm. film because it's the peek behind the curtain you see a shot being filmed there are no traditional credits there's nothing no text on the screen it's just being read aloud of who the people are in the film and then the it's a, an entire dolly shot. This is I'm describing this in case anyone has never seen this film and is listening to this podcast about the film. But to see the, the camera dolly all the way over to you and then to turn and face the audience. And I even wrote down, I'm not looking at my notes here, but I wrote down the uh, the line there that uh, Andre Bazan said, cinema shows us the shows us a world that fits our desires. Contempt is the story of that world. I find it very interesting that this is kind of Godard's chance to to really make a movie about making movies in a way that he probably would totally reject today because he doesn't seem to like his his older films but uh I find it fascinating and I think that's uh what counts more as a viewer yeah the opening because I had no idea what the movie even was I just knew it was a famous one that people love and uh, the whole opening was like I like, like I, I can't even say if I like if I think the movie's good or not, but the movie, <laughs> like, it's fascinating, and like, yeah, I, I have a hard time putting the words like, but it, it's fascinating and different, and it's and I won't say playful with the form, but it's like interesting with the form, mm-hmm. and like this the thing I find with Godard consistently is, it's more interesting than than it is good. But, but it's also like interesting in a way where I don't know, like what my feelings are are on exactly at the same time. I I I, I actually do think it's a good way of putting it because, yeah, it's I, I don't know if you're getting entertainment value out of all of his films, whereas you might be like intellectually challenged or say like, well, that's interesting that he did it that way. I, I do think that this one kind of bridges that gap because it does tell an interesting story. I mean, this is based on a novel. Um, oh, my goodness. What was the English translation? I had this written down. Oh, Ghost on... Ghost on... I wrote down. Ghost at Noon. Yeah. Which was uh, literally just the uh, the translation. It was an Italian book, Il Deprezzo, which sounds like the depression uh, to me, but I don't speak Italian. And I, I was actually surprised looking through the uh, the Wikipedia because I was not going to read an Italian novel. Excuse me. Uh, and it actually does follow the plot fairly closely. You would have thought that Godard would have kind of infused a lot more of his own experiences to create the plot. But I think he chose this book because of the fact that it did follow his thoughts and his feelings and uh, most importantly, his relationship with Anna Karina, which he puts very prominently on display during the very famous half-hour scene of the argument in the apartment in this film in the middle. 
yeah, that what, like that was pretty shocking to me because I kept thinking like, well, it's going to shift to something else to back to um, Jack Palance at some point, right? And it's like <laughs> Jack no. Palance has to come back. Fr- where's Fritz Lang? <laughs> yeah, it's like Fritz Lang is by far my favorite part of the movie. He's um. I won't say he's a goofball, but he seems to be the one who's like having most fun, mm-hmm. and he kind of has like this like devil like devil may care attitude, like yeah, fuck it, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I don't like mindset, and like he's just such a delight in every scene. Yeah, anytime he's on 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 uh, in the scene, you kind of just want to look and see like what's Fritz Lang up to. I want to hang out with Fritz Lang, and I do find it very interesting that pretty much everything he's saying is just Godard's thoughts. I, I I do have to wonder, and I was trying to find out what made Godard choose Lang for that part. I know that he has an appreciation for his films, but I maybe Fritz Lang was like, "You're gonna pay me? I'll do it." I, I don't know if he approached anyone else because I know he did approach several different actresses for the uh, the Brigitte Bardot character, and uh, we'll talk about the financiers later because that's a huge piece of the movie as well. I don't, I don't know if you look too much into that, but this was like his biggest budget film of the 60s, and uh, it's an entire critique of producers trying to mess with art and artists trying to mess with their own art for financial gain, and it's this huge meta thing because of all that. Yeah, I, I did pick up on the meta details, like one, it's a movie about movies, mm-hmm. and then knowing that he had a, a tumultuous... I always say that word wrong. <laughs> he he had a rocky relationship with Anna. I want uh, which one's the novel? Which one's the person? Karina is the person. Karinina is the novel. Okay, I always Anna get those Karina. two. Con- I always get those two confused as well. <laughs> yeah, Anna Karina. I kind of their relationship was uh, not so great at towards the end. Yeah, and so watching this, this felt like I kind of like when I saw her in the theater. I kept thinking like, is this about the divorce with um, Sophie Coppola? with that one character specifically but uh like but this is pretty it felt pretty raw also down to fact it's about uh about movies so it's like okay like mm-hmm. it's 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 subtle but also incredibly not subtle yeah and that's another thing it describes godard like he does not really put any of his uh he, he does not shy away from putting basically his thoughts and feelings directly in front of the camera he's very blunt about how he feels about things and he just but he just sneaks in so much detail so much information where you can watch the movie and then you read somewhere it's like oh but this is actually a novel in which this happens and this character is supposed to represent this other person from literature it's like i didn't get that because i don't know that like i i recently watched le chinois for the first time and that is i mean incredibly political uh, very much Maoist, but there's all these other things going on that just the average person could never really get from a film. And again, it's esoteric. You have to wonder, why is he making this? Who is it for? Is this only for a very select group of people to enjoy? Uh, and is that how films should be made? Uh, but ultimately, I mean, if you're going to be successful and if you're going to make something and people seem to like it and give it value, then I guess there isn't really anything wrong with that. I mean, movies can be, like, it's, it's art. It can be literally anything you want it to be. Exactly. I, I do think that, that movies should at least attempt to have some sort of entertainment value. And entertainment, I'm going to say, maybe not a positive thing, as long as it's making you feel something. And Godard's films tend to be very heady. 
it's the, 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 the emotion is often stripped completely from them, and it's just this experience of uh, this intellectual thing that's going on. And obviously, this has a lot to do with existentialism. And I do think that he tends to be almost mocking with emotions. Like, looking at the, uh, obviously, after the first scene of the credits, the next scene in the film is something that he was forced to add by producers, just like he was forced to use Bridget hmm. Bardot. Uh, because they wanted to satisfy the American producers with some nudity, and it's just this very bland scene of Michelle Piccoli and Brigitte Bardot in bed. He's fully clothed. She's nude. She's laying face down, uh, and <laughs> he just has these color gels come and go because he loves doing uh, red, white, and blue, the colors of the French flag, and they're just mm. discussing her body in the least romantic way possible. But it has this beautiful music kind of going under it that makes you, f- that, that manipulates you almost into feeling that it's a real scene. And he loves doing this thing where suddenly the music will just end and you're just left with the scene continuing after that. And it's almost like, oh, I guess there really isn't anything going on here without the music. And then the music comes back. It's like, oh, there's that <laughs> nice music again. Yeah, because uh, uh, we're going to record one on. I'm learning French, but I still have trouble saying it aloud. Uh, my life to live, and like that does the same thing of like it be a close up of uh, Anna Karina, Anna Karina's face, and then like get the have the music play, and then like it fades out, and it's like that that's and it, like fucks with you emotionally. It does. But that's like the one that like I really like almost love mm-hmm. because of my life to live, but um. That that one yeah. I, I I that one's good. I've never connected with that one as much. I, I need to watch it again. But I, I love and that's the thing with his sixties film, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of inventiveness that's in there that just kind of kind of kicks you in the teeth almost, where it's like, Oh wow, look look at how this is being made, look at what's being done here. It makes you want to be in the sixties in France, uh, skip the political turmoil, but just be a part of this. <laughs> And and you just see like this youthful filmmaker invent, reinventing the genre as he goes along because, I mean, Godard did kind of bring cinema verite to a different level. He invented the jump cut, which is something that's so commonplace in films these days. I mean, cinema did kind of change after this. It really rocked the, uh, the ho- mm. rocked Hollywood in the late '60s and the '70s, and. Obviously, Godard isn't the only person from the new wave that kind of helped influence this new outlook on movies and how to make them, but he's certainly one of the most prominent players. Yeah, and um, uh, I think My Life to Live is the one I like the most because it was sold to me as it's the one that's most like a Mizoguchi film. Okay, yeah. And watching it in that lens is like, oh yeah, it really is. It's not as oppressively sad as Mizoguchi. (laughs) Because Mizuguchi is a really is really a, a specialist when it comes to like, do you want to have a, a shitty day? Let's watch one of his movies. <laughs> uh, I, I love Mizuguchi movies, though. There's something, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just weird about watching something very depressing like that and just being very introspective and contemplative and just being like, yeah, yeah, I just watched uh, Sancho the Bailiff. I'm going to go uh, <laughs> run some errands now. Yeah, I watched that the day... I saw Twelve Years a Slave. I went to the theater oh, to see that, and then I came home. I was like, "Oh, what yeah, a I have day. my Netflix DVD." <laughs> I was like, oh, this was not a good double feature for me." <laughs> uh, that was the first Mizuguchi film that I had seen. Uh, Sancho the Bailiff. I had no idea what I was getting into, and I was like, "Oh, it's kind of like a a fairy tale. It kind of has like a fable quality to it, where it's teaching this moral lesson." Oh my God, it's terror! It's it's so soul destroying. <laughs> 
it just gets worse and worse as the movie goes along. You're waiting for that like cathartic end, and you do kind of get it, but at what cost? Oh, yeah, like the, like Miza Gucci is one I don't go back to a lot, except for uh, uh, was it Women of the Night because it's kind of a precursor to the Pinky Violence movies. Uh, thematically, uh, like I, at least I can I can see a, a tie to like what would come in, in coming decades with some stuff in that movie, and also what, what, it's what movie was uh, that? What? I'm sorry, I I, I didn't. Oh, know. Uh, Women of the Night. Oh yeah, I'm I'm not as crazy about his. Uh non-period pieces I, I i've watched them multiple times hmm. or i think that's the one i've seen a couple times i don't know there's something about like ugetsu and sancho the bailiff and life of uharu uh and uh what's what's the one with the tat with the the artist that like tattoos uh the woman oh um something is five women yeah it's like a utamu and his five women um uh, udamaro udamaro and his five women yeah, I, I, I don't know. I connect a little bit more with his period pieces, I think, because of that, like, sort of, like, fairy tale, fable-esque hmm. quality where it's, like, you're using this period piece to tell a story of something that's going on in the real world where you don't have that level of artifice when you're approaching it directly. And I get yeah. that sometimes approaching things directly is the way to go. Is Women of the Night the one that, like, basically convinced uh, <laughs> to, uh, Japan to outlaw, outlaw prostitution? Uh, I'd imagine it had to be that one. <laughs> yeah, because that's one of his last films, isn't it? Oh no, that's towards the end. That was one of th- that was um one directly about like post-war life without really talking about the Americans because you know they weren't allowed to openly bring that up. Yeah, but uh, I think Street Street of Shame was the last one. I don't know if he Street lived to see that in the theater. Street of Shame is the Street of Shame is the one that uh that 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 like helped uh end prostitution that was the one so that hmm. street of shame i've seen twice i like that one women of the night i've only seen once i gotta watch that again i can tell that that we are we've decided to talk about mizuguchi instead of godard because it's so much <laughs> easier to talk about mizuguchi yeah uh whatever happens it's uh, exactly. i'm not we're, we're with like yeah, yeah i'm i'm not a uh i mean some some shows are, are stickler like you have to stay on topic and they cut out everything it's like i don't know it's more fun just kind of go go where it goes exactly i agree completely because you know what it's a film discussion we're here to discuss film history and how we feel about movies and that's just how we are and uh, i i I find it very interesting to discuss a movie like contempt see bringing it back around with someone that doesn't like it quite as much as i do and i i do think that a big piece of it for me is this sense of like this critique of movies I love the fact that it has so many layers. It is a movie about a screenwriter that wants to create art that he enjoys, that feels forced to do something that he doesn't want to do for the benefit of his wife. And she almost doesn't respect him for having done that. And meanwhile, Godard is being forced in a way from a financial perspective to work with these producers that are giving him a bigger budget than he's ever had before. The only thing that they gave him really any say on is what the story was going to be. And he obviously got free reign to do the script himself, but they were forcing him to add scenes. They were forcing him to cast people. Like, he was, uh, he approached Monica Vitti for um, the, the Brig- hmm. Brigitte Bardot part, and she did not. Uh, I'm trying to remember. He approached both Monica Vitti and Sophia Loren. One of them did screen tests, but, like, seemed completely disinterested. I think it might have been Sophia Loren, and I think Monica Vitti just didn't want to do it. 
and they just forced him to use Brigitte Bardot, who is now a horrible, horrible racist, um, because yeah. she was uh, the the it girl at the time in in uh, Europe, and they obviously made him play up on the nudity aspects. And of course, then he's completely satirizing the fact that the American producers forced him to add nudity with the Jack Palance character, who, <laughs> even though Fritz Lang is the most interesting, I love every second Jack Palance is on screen because he is just so, like, opaque in just uh, how, and tra- no, not opaque, he's so transparent in just his thoughts. Like, he's watching this movie and he's furrowing his brow with these shots of statues from Homer's Odyssey just <laughs> spinning around and the second a, a naked lady shows up he's just like smiling and laughing and saying this is great this is great now, now Fritz I know that you and I get this but will the audiences <laughs> understand this uh, yeah uh, I, I love that he's just this uh, like that's one of the subtle that's one of the not subtle things that is I love that like the, the American is this this dumb this, this big dumb idiot that likes boobs basically yeah. <laughs> And, and, and it's like, almost like the, the the less subtle it is, the funnier it gets. The fact that it's so over the top and so in your face is is <laughs> makes it even funnier. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Um, you ta- talked about the uh, the very non erotic scene when they're in bed together talking about her body. Mm-hmm. I feel. Uh, uh, that 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 reminds me of Breathless because there's a scene similar to that talking about when uh, uh, John Paul character is like talking about the Gene Seaborg yeah Seaborg talking about her and and it feels like from uh, do right I'll get to I'll get there eventually <laughs> uh, and do and do right thing the scene where Mookie is like thank god for feet thank god for knees part mm-hmm. uh which i'm like I, I know spike is a big fan of uh godar because i mm-hmm. believe that's on the list uh that that's out there of like his film class of like um movies you have to watch to to like be in the class which like what uh, i believe there's a couple godar in there yeah but I think what's interesting is there is a sense of intimacy in the the do the right uh, do the right thing scene, because the, there there is a sort of like love there there is a sort of like uh, charisma, and chemistry going on there, whereas the scene in contempt is being approached completely blandly. But I will say that it serves a purpose because without that scene, you do not have any moment where you see this married couple doing anything, uh, remotely together. Outside of that, they're always in a fight. I think it's good to kind of show a baseline of what they were like before the incidents of this film took place. So I, I do think that it was justifiable to add that. And maybe it's against what Godard wanted to do. And he clearly showed his distaste for being forced to do it. But I do think that it serves a purpose within the film itself. Yeah. And uh, I like the uh, um, Homer Odyssey angle of like uh, they're talking about like their interpretation of is like she was i watched it earlier this week i uh my notes aren't very clear but like uh that uh, fritz and um uh, piccoli's character they think she was unfaithful mm-hmm. did i get that right so the, they, like, they 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 kind of talk about it in two ways one is that they think that maybe she was unfaithful uh that she was unfaithful Oh my God! Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to piece it together now because they discuss it from two different angles. 
the latter one when they're walking away from the uh, the set to the crazy cool house that is featured at the end of the movie, they discuss that maybe uh, Odysseus didn't want to go home. Maybe that's the reason that the Odyssey took so long for him. It wasn't that he just was facing all these insurmountable challenges. It's that he preferred adventure to home life. Um, hmm. But also, like, the per, what, what is it? Persephone? Persepolis? What, what, what is the... No, no, it's not... Who is the wife in the Odyssey? I should have... Read uh, Penelope. This, uh, Penelope. Okay, at least I had the the P word right. I should have read this uh, ancient epic to, to prepare for this podcast <laughs> and, and to pre- prepare for this movie. Yeah, how do they discuss the unfaithfulness there? This this theory that she had maybe always been unfaithful because I know the big thing is in this story that she had taken. What was she approaching other suitors or had she rejected them because she was waiting for her husband? Do you remember that detail? Because I uh, do not. My interpretation was always she rejected the suitors. But I haven't read it since uh, college, so, yeah. so they're, I don't they're, remember. So the way that they're approaching us, don't worry, listeners, we're getting there. We're getting to the to the answer here. <laughs> so their their uh, their input is that perhaps she was unfaithful and is lying to Odysseus when he returns home uh, that that she had remained faithful, which kind of follows the way that uh, I mean the story takes place because clearly what's going on in. Michelle Piccoli, Brigitte Bardot, and Jack Balance's life is mirroring a bit of the Odyssey itself, where uh, there's some fear from Michelle Piccoli that his wife has been unfaithful to him, uh, even though it's a situation that he has almost completely thrust her into. And that is ultimately the, the crux of the argument here. And uh, <laughs> we'll get to that in a bit, I'm sure, because I have plenty of thoughts there, because there's so much going on there when we get to that argument, especially. And I think it also is very interesting to kind of see the interplay between men and women here and who Godard thinks is right, who you as the audience think is right, <laughs> because uh, Brigitte Bardot's character is largely silent and largely uh, kind of not expressing how she feels directly. It's almost like she's being purposefully aloof. And I don't know if that is intentional or if that's Godard trying to say, oh, women are irrational. They don't know what they're thinking. I can't tell if there's some misogyny at play here or not, but it almost, in at least a modern lens, the way I view it, it kind of, her not speaking kind of allows me to kind of fill in my own emotion onto what she's experiencing and try to understand and interpolate what is going through her character's head better than if it was said point blank to me. Yeah. I'm still trying to process who, like, not not that I should, not that I decide or something. I'm still trying to process like, what what? Uh, Cause the movie is, like, in some ways it's pretty broad and empty, as so like, I, and so I'm trying still trying to fill in a blank of for me of like, well, uh, is uh, is uh, is he an asshole or she an asshole or are both of them assholes in this situation? I think they're both a little bit, but I'm going to say more so Piccoli. Because I think it's pretty obvious that she does not want to go in the car with Jack Palance. And he's just like, no, go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll meet up with you. And uh, I, reading through what I did in the novel, it makes it a lot more clear that that's the issue. That she believes that he has prostituted her out to the Jack Palance character in the book for his own career gains. And the scene where he arrives late because the taxi broke down, which we never see in the movie itself. She believes in the book that he purposefully took time so that they would have time to, you know, or he would have time to seduce her and everything. 
which I think is a reasonable argument. I think it's a reasonable concern. Uh, but obviously, communication is key. You got to talk to people about that. But the very yeah. fact that not only once but twice he sends her off with Jack Palance's character, who is so blatantly like, "Hey, is your wife coming?" Like, <laughs> you can't trust this guy with anyone. He's a sleaze bag, and he's just like, "Go ahead, I'll catch up with you later." It's it's almost very nonchalant. It's very old world, like not being a man, not pro- not protecting your. Your, your wife, and almost like feeding her to, directly to the wolves. So I think that she is completely uh, understandable there. I think she's completely right there, and I think Michelle Piccoli is just a little bit too uh, not understanding, a little bit too in his own head uh, about it. Although, had they talked about it better, they probably could have solved it. Uh, and then there's the other issue. I think that you know that she spent half an hour near the beginning of the movie with Jack Palance, yet they don't actually speak the same language. So what in the world were they doing during that time? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is another derailment, but uh, the their, but uh, her dissatisfaction uh, 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 with him feels like the sketch from I think you should leave the magician one where the where the husband goes on stage <laughs> and uh and, and, and the magician like makes like joke about him and this this whole sketch is like the wife belittling belittling the husband being like <laughs> the, the magician make, make it look like a pussy up there you man up <laughs> uh, is this I, I I've never seen the show is that where, where the hot dog meme comes from though uh yes I need to see this show because that, that one meme always brings me such joy, and I don't even fully understand the context of it, but it's so hilarious looking. Uh, yeah, I, I, you'll know quickly if it's your sense of humor. I showed my girlfriend the first episode, and she did not <laughs> laugh once. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I love that show. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 like if Marcus hears this or Martin, like, they will know the sketch I'm talking about, and they might be able to see see what I see. Marcus and Martin do not get mad at me for not having seen the show. I, I will catch up. That's my homework. <laughs> it's only six episodes. Oh, that's digestible. Yeah, I could watch two uh, contempts in that time. Oh yeah, you could. Uh, what was it? Um, uh, you mentioned. Uh, I think it's the house at the end of it. But the, or maybe the house. Where is it? No, there's a house in the middle of the movie. The apartment. No, the, the the flat they're living in. No, it's. Where is it? Oh, is it the castle that Jack Palance lives in? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That. <laughs> I think that's the same house from Blood and Black Lace. Because the 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 doorway next to the stairs and the thing in like the area under stairs, it looks like um, a certain looks like it's from a certain key scene in that movie. I which, need to I need to rewatch Blood and Black Lace to to, to, to double check that. But that sound uh, that would be amazing. I bet it is. Yeah, and also seeing Jack Palance made me think like, well, he's probably in Italy making a bunch of movies at the time. Because this was all filmed in uh, Italy, apparently. Yeah. It, it also seems very much like the the the, uh, the the American would be like, "I need a place to live. Buy me a <laughs> castle." Yeah. 
Yeah, because you know, and and Italy, they're everywhere, basically. Yeah. All right. So this is I'm literally going to IMDb and searching filming locations for both films. They do not specify the castle. Hmm. But Blood and Black Lace, which was made the following year. I don't want to say it's Jack Palance that, but it's not Jack Palance. It's uh, Cameron Mitchell. Yeah. All right. So let's see here. Well, I think it's possible because they're both for- filmed in Rome, Lazio, Italy. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, same city, same... Uh, the, the only thing that they don't specify is the villa, which they do specify for Blood and Black Lace. Another another fun little uh, diversion there. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, um, as uh, as a perf- like performance-wise, what do you think of Michelle uh, Piccoli? I think it's very interesting. I always forget that it's him in this movie because pretty much every other time I see him, he's kind of like a brooding, imposing figure, usually playing like a villain or very rarely like a, a kind fatherly figure, where in this he's kind of playing like a, a an impotent intellectual type uh, that, that, that fancies himself to be like a, uh, a tough guy. It's uh, very different for him. He, he has a much smaller presence on screen, but maybe that's just because he's often shown next to Jack Palance, who looks like he's <laughs> seven feet tall in this one. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I find that a very interesting thing. I, I, in my brain, when I think about this film, I'm like, oh yeah, Jean-Paul Belmondo. Wait, no, it's not. It's Michelle Piccoli in this one. <laughs> uh, and I think this is the only time he worked with Michelle Piccoli. But again, that's another thing. Like, he's working with bigger actors now. Even though Jean-Paul Belmondo became a bigger actor later, he wasn't a big actor when they made Breathless. Um, yeah. Whereas Michelle yeah, Piccoli I, had that kind of history within the uh, French film industry. Yeah, this is not an insult or joke at... Uh... John Paul's expense, but he comes off to me as too dumb to play his character. I get that completely. You know, because this this is supposed to be like literally, he, he knows his stuff. He he understands literature, and his last project was uh, what was it? Hercules meets Toto. <laughs> uh, yeah, something like that. Well, Jack Palance loved it. Yeah, like I could see John Paul as a Jack Palance character. Yeah. Not as a, an intellectual, which maybe he has, but I've only seen him uh, play like kind of like dumb, handsome guys or like action leads. Not like a, you know, like 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 I could see. Um, I always bring bring him up, but John Louis Trenton. Uh, how do you say his last name? Trentignon. Trentignon. I could see him as a lead because he's can see like. That too. He, he's like he's, he, uh, five, he's the right eight, age. five nine. Yeah. yeah, right age. He has like that pensive nature. He kind of has like a creepy vibe where it's like he won't kill you, but like he might steal from you. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And I'm, it's not to say Michelle Piccoli doesn't work in this movie because he clearly does. I just think it's so interesting that I always forget that it's him. I always replace him in my mind with someone else. And if this was made in the seventies, I, I think Jean uh, Pierre Liod could have played the part as well. Hmm. Uh, he, no, he always has that like boyish charm. Maybe the '80s, he could have played the part. Yeah, but uh, it also feels like 
like like if but if like anyone who like comes off as like intelligent or thoughtful could fill that role because it doesn't feel like because I've only seen Piccoli in uh, that one Rivette movie, the four hour one. Uh, you have to be more uh, specific. <laughs> uh, yes, I know. <laughs> I, I, but uh, the weird thing is, I know exactly what you mean. I just can't remember the name of it because um, you always tell LaBelle, me to watch it. Yeah, it is great. Uh, LaBelle something. Yeah. Uh, the Beautiful Troublemaker. Yeah. And uh, and he and in Boomel stuff, but like he's so much more livelier in those. And here's this like I've never seen him kind of so. Like so, like just drained and like reserved. Yeah, he's very he's a very passive character, but I I, I mm. think it's also interesting that that Godard chose Piccoli because of the fact that I, I do think that in many other films he does almost have a more commanding presence, and I do think that he casts Piccoli to play Jean Luc Godard, and I think that speaks a lot to who Godard sees as himself almost. <laughs> Um, yeah. e- even though he wrote wrote him as himself, so he, he's <laughs> almost forced to like dial it back quite a bit. Yeah, because um, like Jean Paul wouldn't fit as like a a stand in for Godard. No, but at the uh, same time, uh, I also uh, think uh, that he almost sees himself a little bit as Jean Paul Belmondo, this guy that's just gonna like shoot first and ask questions later. <laughs> um, and hmm. I, I do think that Godard has a. Oh, he, I definitely think he's a mean person and has a mean streak. I think he can be quite a bit of an asshole. And I think that Piccoli plays this guy like a like a complete asshole, so I think it works. Hmm, yeah. But, uh, and Piccoli is also in Young Girls of Rochefort. Yeah, that's one of the few movies where he plays like a, a nice guy. Whereas, yeah, and- uh, is, is, is he the, I think he's the uh, the bad guy in Donkey Skin. And he plays a not good uh, part in that. I haven't seen that movie in a while, but I do. I appreciate, yeah, he's somewhere in Donkey Skin. I just can't remember who he is. Yeah. All right, so the only thing I've ever seen Bridget Bordeaux is in God Created Woman, but I kind of don't remember much of that movie. It was like nine or ten years ago, so <laughs> all of it has left my mind. I have not seen that one. This actually might be the only... No, I've also seen her in the... Uh, what's the Henry-Georges Clouseau movie? Uh, I, I saw Inferno and... Um, uh, the one that uh, Friedkin says is not... Or that he said, Friedkin says he did not remake as Sorcerer. Wages of Fear. Yeah, Wages of Fear is my favorite of his. But Brigitte Bardot is in La Verite, which is actually really good. And she actually does a good job in that. She 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 actually can act in that movie. Whereas in this one, she she feels like a uh, Anna Karina stand-in and even goes as far as to wear an Anna Karina wig for a large part of the argument while Michelle Piccoli wears a toga to look like uh, Odysseus. Oh, okay. That's that... I was thinking, like, is that what he's going for? But I was thinking, that's too obvious. That's too stupid. It's never but... <laughs> too stupid for Godard. Okay. It's 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 always this weird mix of, like, he's going to be completely on the nose and then throw out such an obscure literary reference that you're never going to understand it. Hmm. Yeah. I never feel like, uh... underestimate or overestimate him. <laughs> uh, I mean, like... I don't know. Like I, I'm still. Hmm. Like, I, 
like I don't want to make it clear. I, it's not that I don't like Godard. It's just I'm still after like five or six of his movies. I'm still in that mode of like I just don't know if I like it. Mm-hmm. It it's it's interesting and well made. Just like I'm just still in that place of like it, it, there's stuff to think about, but it doesn't stick with me that long. And like it's just like he he seems like. Kind of like H.P. Lovecraft, where he's more influential than he is good. And I find it interesting, because I I have a very different sort of uh, experience, where for me, for the longest time, it's like, I really like this, but I can't put my finger on why. It's something that I... And and it's the kind of thing where I sometimes prefer to just, like, think about the movies and just digest the movies than I do to watch them. Like, putting contempt on is one of the easier ones to do whereas if you were to rewatch um not Alphaville what's what's a really like uh, to, to rewatch uh, uh, two or three things no especially that one or or Parole Le Fou it's more interesting to kind of like think about it and dwell on the movie than it is sometimes to actually watch the movie itself and uh but but you should because there's just so much going on there and I do think the movie plays out in your own mind and in your own psyche after the fact, at least for me. And that's what I kind of enjoy about the films. But obviously, everyone has different tastes. Everyone's going to approach things differently. But uh, <laughs> what are you going to do? Hmm. Yeah. So so with this being like a metaphor of his re- relationship with Anna Karina, um, is, he, is it so... Is this supposed to be saying that, like, she cheated on him, or he forced, tried to, like, use her as a pawn to get, like... I I just think that he is taking out his frustrations. I don't fully know all the issues they had. I just know that they fought all the time. And I think that he's, I think, dealing with his own insecurities, probably of (laughs) suddenly doing a bigger budget movie, having all this sudden fame, um, all this sudden money... And maybe they argued about money. Maybe they argued about uh, who he was as an artist. Because I do believe I've read somewhere that he actually put in actual, like, things that they said to each other in their arguments Hmm. into this. Whereas he did take the actual premise and plot from this book. I think he put the pathos and the emotion that he... I don't think he he works with emotion as well. Uh, But he did put that into the film itself. And I... (laughs) Again, it's so obvious because she literally puts on a wig and literally they frame her standing against a wall the same way that uh, Anna Karina does in Vives a V. So like on that whole thing, it feels like there's a real comparison uh, he's trying to parallel. He's trying to make with like marriage and like film contracts because like uh, there's this recurring thing of she's been like, well, you agree to do the movie, and then so it, it, you know, he signed a contract, and just feels like there's something like going on with like uh like the uh, the his relationship with his wife versus their relationship with like the movie production that I'm still trying to piece together. Hmm. I have not thought about right. that because it's, yeah. it's for um. he still loves her. She's the one that has fallen out of love with her. But at the same time, it's not like she's saying, like, I want to divorce you. She's just like, we're going to stay together for appearances uh, for this reason, but I'm going to sleep in a separate bedroom now. And it all seems very sudden. It all seems very rash. 
And granted, you have to do things like that for a movie. You can't... Uh... Oh, no. Actually, in the book, apparently it takes place over a longer period of time, whereas Godard mm. changed it into, like, it takes place over the course of a weekend or something, which I think is more interesting for a movie anyways. But I've not thought about the contract thing. But I definitely think there 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 is that sense of obligation but i think it's mostly because he's obligated to do something that he doesn't want to do because he, he there's financial gain in it he does not want to uh change homer's the odyssey that fritz lang is filming for the benefit of this jack palance character it, it is an artistic compromise for him and i personally want to see fritz lang's the odyssey after this movie i wish they had made that even though I'm pretty sure Fritz Lang would approach the Odyssey completely differently instead of having all the gods being portrayed as statues and being all very heady and all very uh, uh, experimental. But I, I think that would be an interesting film nonetheless. Listeners, no, I, I haven't seen that many French New Wave movies. But uh, the amount of nudity in this one did catch me off guard. Because, uh, like, I, I don't know, it's like I just don't really think of, like this much like uh like i don't say graphic sexuality but this much just like you know sexuality like so overt in a french new wave movie at least the ones i've seen i'm trying to think about other ones that have like there's there's a decent amount of nudity in vive civi isn't there i don't remember any i just rewatched it but i don't remember there's maybe a little bit but it's i don't know it did I'm trying to think about other Godard films because I, I I know that he's not like a prude when it comes to nudity. I know that he originally was going to cast Anna Karina in Breathless, but she refused to do a nude scene. Uh, and I don't even think there is a nude scene in Breathless, which is <laughs> interesting. Um, there really isn't. No, there's a decent amount of nudity in. Uh, oh my god, that's that's pretty late though. What's the uh, the 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 the, the La Collectionus, the uh, Romare film, but I, I think that's uh, near the end of the new wave as it was. So, yeah, I, I don't know. You, you think of French art films and think of them as being like filled with nudity, but I think you're right. The French new wave wasn't like crazy explicit in that degree. And I, I do think that it was being added by the behest of the producers to, to make more money, to sell a smut film in the States like... Uh, because uh, something like Igmar Bergman's The Silence, which came out the same year, had some very mm. graphic scenes in it. And that was like, hey, let's sell it because it, people are going to want to see the sex so we can get away with it because it's foreign. Do you think that's uh, why Corman got in on foreign films? Or do you think it's a mix of both, that he liked them and he could, he could, he could sell them? I think it's a mix of both. I do know that a lot of, I think it's Martin Scorsese that says that he got into foreign films because it was like a, hey, let's, oh, we're schoolboys, let's go sneak out to the foreign theater, we'll get <laughs> to see boobs. And then he was like, oh, and I got to see great cinema. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs> yeah, I was like that in high school with IFC because it was like uncensored <laughs> and it was like, oh, this is an artsy movie. Oh, uh, what's that late era Berlucci movie? Oh, the, the Dreamers? Yeah, that, I remember in high school being like, oh, this is artsy and has boobs in it, so I'm, so I'm not being a pervert by watching this a lot. <laughs> but then I watched it uh, when I was in college, like, oh, I did not realize what happened in this movie exactly. I've never seen that one. 
I know that I, I know that it has a uh, bit of a uh, not stigma, but a uh, reputation though. Uh, yeah. When you if you're 16, like it's great, but when you're in college, like oh, this nudity isn't like fun. Nudity. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, like no, one of the first one of the first ones where I, where, where I realized like oh, there's context to this. Yeah. No, it's always interesting to watch a lot of like Z grade movies because uh, they don't some some Z grade movies do not understand the difference between good nudity and bad nudity, and uh, I, yeah. I think canon canon films often did not understand the difference. Yeah, there's a place for it, and and people know listen people listening know like I'm not a prude. I've I've recommended uh, at least one softcore film. Uh, Riley Mesker's score, which is a great movie, which I think is on Amazon Prime still. Hmm. But uh, I was seeing the softcore cut, not the hardcore insert one. But uh, yeah, but like, but like nudity is something that um, uh, can be done artfully in section in an erotic way, but also can be done in a way where it's like, uh, like like a like a rape scene in a Death Wish sequel, where it's like. Oh, Canon, really? Uh, this one to have boobs. Yeah, at any yeah, cost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which uh, I do like the Death Wish sequels, except for certain scenes, and like the racism, the <laughs> <laughs> racism of them. <laughs> oh, the eighties. I wonder if this is the first time that a Death Wish movie has been discussed in the same podcast as Contempt. Uh, with contempt, yes. On this show, absolutely no. not. Yes, I just meant in general <laughs> with with uh, le mapri. Yeah, which I looked up the translation, and it's just a literal translation. There's no like fun, uh, like uh, like like uh, my go-to example is um, Daughters of Darkness. Uh, the French title is Lips of Blood. Which I think is a much better title than yeah. the American one. My my least favorite uh, renaming of the movie is a Lucia Fulci movie. Uh, the American title is the is the Psychic, and the Italian title I'm not going to try to butcher the actual Italian, but it's uh, Seven Notes in Black, which is such a better title. That's like one of my favorite movie titles of all time. And they came mm. up with the Psychic. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of boring. It's incredibly boring. And that's actually one of Lucio Fulci's movies that makes sense. Oh, interesting. I highly recommend I, it. I don't know if I want to watch a Fulci movie that makes sense. <laughs> I like when it's nonsensical. I mean, I mean, there there is a logical leap at the end in order to understand why the Seven Notes in Black makes is is the title, but it's actually like a decent uh, decent movie. Hmm. Uh, granted, I like Lucio Fulci though. Yeah. I, uh, I'm I like Fulci overall, but like if it depends on like my mood, if I'm like more hot or cold on him, it, it's never really consistent, and yeah. I'm not really sure why I have this like weird flip flop, uh, <laughs> uh, thing with Fulci. Um, listen to our Fulci episode; you might pick up on like some of my weird flip floppiness on it. <laughs> And I might have a better explanation for it there. <laughs> I will have to check that out. I am so behind in my podcast, though. Working from home, that, like, I used to listen to podcasts during my commute, and now I'm trying to squeeze them in whenever I can <laughs> uh, during the day. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I feel you on that. But uh, 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 
my favorite movie title, one of my favorite movie titles ever is a Jalo that I do not like that just got released on Blu-ray, which I'm like, that one? But it's um, Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, which is a great title, and the movie is just like one of the, one of the more dull, boring Jalos. Like, I as someone who oh I own that one, but I've not watched it yet. Yeah, uh, I've seen a, I've seen a number of Jalos, and that's by far for me just the one I'm like, yeah, uh, I don't need to watch it a second time. It's <laughs> it's it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure I will get to it eventually. That's one of the fun yeah. things about Giallo is like sometimes it's a mixed bag. Sometimes you're gonna get complete brilliance. Sometimes you're gonna get meh. Yeah, this is that, that title so cool, and then watch, I and watch it's like, nah, this didn't work. That's a shame. All right, so you went to uh, film school, so you actually know film stuff. <laughs> okay, so with the jump cuts and editing, like, what does jump cut mean exactly? So that is when you take a single shot and edit out pieces, so it creates a jump in the continuity, and Godard completely invented it for breathless for a completely uh not not to to be logical at all it was just done i uh, can't think of the word here he is as a requirement he was trying to get it down to 90 minutes for um for exhibition length and rather than take out any scenes he just took out the boring parts of some long shots in the uh in a car ride which created jump cuts so Instead of just being this one long uninterrupted shot, it's interrupted by this jump in the action, and he changed editing with that. I don't think. Now there might be some jump cuts technically in the montage sequences because this 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 film has a few montages where it cuts into uh, previous scenes in the movies, later scenes in the movies. That's one thing you're always going to get with Godard is some interesting editing, and I think it's a very great visual way to kind of show. A character's motivations, what they're thinking of. And it's also like a nice tease that you're going to cut to. Like d- during the apartment scene, uh, near the end of it, maybe at the two-thirds point, there is this great montage where you hear voiceovers from Michelle Piccoli. For the first time ever, you kind of get to hear uh, Brigitte Bardot's uh, motivations, what she's thinking. It's cutting back to scenes from the, from the, 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 the film studio to the uh, Jack Palance's castle, the <laughs> scenes that don't even take place in the movie, just these memories. And then uh, it cuts forward to scenes from the end of the movie that we haven't even seen yet. And it's almost like this this great way of kind of showing memory and uh, just train of thought and this this looking forward to the future, looking back at the past. And I love that sequence there. I, I love nonlinear editing in that sense, where it's just kind of like, let's throw all this stuff out there under beautiful music with people speaking. But again, I do think that Godard thinks that music is a bit manipulative in his films. Yeah, I feel like uh, Spike Lee borrowed that too with like his use of music in trying to man- manipulate emotions. But that's, I mean, that's part of what it's there for. Yeah, it's like move, Spike move. is a little more blatant with it, where it's like sometimes and like, and some of the ones I really don't like, there are parts that really get me emotionally just from the music, and it's like, god damn it, it worked again. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, Giallo, um, oh my god, which one is it? It's the uh, what's the uh, Dario Argento movie with Jennifer Connelly? That is oh, Phenomena. Uh, so there is yeah. a scene in that where. 
she where Jennifer Connelly's character is just reaching into a bush to like get a necklace out. It's like a minute long shot of just a hand reaching into the bush, but it's you're on the edge of your seat because of the music. If it were if you yeah. hit mute, it'd be like this is the most boring thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but suddenly yeah. you throw in this music and it's like oh this is crazy. What's she gonna find in there? Yeah. And you mentioned earlier about like Godard plays with like that in a, in a more fun. Maybe I don't know fun, but like it'll be like they'll play like the music, frustrating I guess. Yeah. Where it's like they'll play the music and you, you get swept up uh, somewhat, and then it stops and it's a silence, and then it starts again, and like it's just this really weird thing of like I'm still trying to figure out like what, like, cause in in my life in my in my life to live, I think it's more effective, uh, cause like it. It, it leaves you like more because like uh what am I trying to say with this because like in my love you get like the uh uh the references to um uh Joan of, passion of Joan of Arc mm-hmm. where it's like uh the close up on her face and an intense music and then it stops and like leaves you to time to contemplate like what like what's happening what she's feeling how you're feeling but here it just feels like he's like just fucking around yeah. Especially during the scene later, I, I, I call it later because anything before the argument to me is, is the beginning of the movie and anything after the argument to me is the end of the movie, where they're meeting with the Jack Palance and Fritz Lang at the theater, and there's this thing going on on stage, and it's like this <laughs> crazy loud music, it's like blowing out this, the sound system, but anytime a character needs to speak, it just completely goes away so that they can speak, and I, I have to wonder if it was done for practical reasons, because... They if to, to to make the music quieter wouldn't work, and you couldn't hear them speaking over the music. So maybe they just thought, eh, just cut out the sound when they need to speak, and then we'll cut back into it. It feels like an artistic decision, but it might have been a practical one. But it's huh. confounding. It makes you think about it. Yeah. But you don't fully know why they did that. And that whole thing on stage, I'm trying to figure out. Like, is that an audition? Is this the lips? Is are they lip syncing? Like, I'm not sure what is happening. Yeah, I don't even know why they're there. I ha- I think it, and you know what? I've never questioned it. I just assume that like, hey, we're going into town for a thing, but maybe they're just auditioning people. Because I think afterwards, what is it? Jack Palance says uh, she agreed to do with a nude scene, eight a.m. tomorrow. We got to be in a, in a, on on the Mediterranean. So maybe that was an audition. I just didn't even question it. Yeah, because like the only like. That that whole sequence is confounding, and she looks in the woman on stage looks like Velma from Scooby Doo without <laughs> glasses. It's basically the same outfit. Yeah, it was the same. Like, people dressed like Velma. Um, you've seen this more than me, so like, do you think we are supposed to identify more with one of the two um, people in the, in the marriage, or are we just or? Or are we supposed to just be like outsiders looking in? Hmm. I think we're supposed to identify with Michelle Piccoli. I I think I identify more with. Uh, I don't know though, because literally, I would say for ninety five percent of the movie, we're supposed to identify with Michelle Piccoli. But in the two moments where Michelle Piccoli tells uh, Brigitte Bardot to go with Jack Palance, I think we're supposed to and empathize with her. Because we just, you see her face, you see her pleading look, and yeah, she should be just saying, no, I don't want to go. He doesn't understand French. This is why I don't want to go. Just don't send me. But in those moments, you can see. 
I think it's to me it's as clear as day how he he just completely messed up by sending his wife away and he is completely he's done nothing nothing to try to stop this from happening he's just completely nonchalant about it. it's like yeah go ahead do 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 gonna work on this movie now yeah although he's got to get to hang out with Fred Schlang so yes yeah. Yes, this is true, but he didn't get to hang out with Fritz Lang the first time. But he chose he chose to hang out with Fritz Lang more than than be with his wife and save his wife from this sleazy American producer, which I think is a a, a reasonable uh, argument starter, in my opinion. Maybe not a yeah instant divorce, but you know. Yeah. But it does I mean, it yeah. does make this movie one of my favorite like subgenres of movie: miserable people in beautiful places. <laughs> oh, the, uh, this feels like a precursor. I'm sure I'm not the first to bring it up to Possession, the Zulowski movie. I can see that. Except uh, Zulowski goes uh, much bigger with the emotion. Yeah. And there's the yeah, and like it should not. This should not surprise anyone. I am. I fucking love that movie. <laughs> I've only uh, seen it, it once. I, I keep trying to buy it on Blu-ray when it comes mm-hmm. up on like a vinegar syndrome sale or something. But I definitely do see the uh, the the parallels. I mean, one, uh, the, the 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 object of infidelity is a giant, weird, crazy monster, and then the other one is possession. <laughs> Except and I like, it, I don't think Brigitte Bardot actually wants to be with uh, the penis monster in this film, whereas uh, Isabella Ajani does yeah and there's no like um the arguments uh doesn't uh end with like someone cutting their wrist with like a a turkey cutter yeah (laughs) you just take a bath wearing wearing a fedora and then uh wear a a wig of the director's wife yeah uh what else all right and um yeah, I, I don't have much else to say. Like it's, it's Godar. This will be a continuing theme throughout the whole, whole season of like, I I don't get it, but, you know, I don't I don't like regret watching the movies. I'm not like annoyed that I watch the movies. I'm always like, well, I can say I watch another Godar and I and I gave him another shot and I still just don't quite, yeah. I don't know, like, still my favorite uh, French New Life people are Rivette and um, Chabral and uh, Truffaut. That's fair. I I used to like Godard and Truffaut the most. I have more recently come around more to Varda and Romare. Although I, I will say that perhaps some of my favorite films from both of them came after the French New Wave, but I still think that they're some of my favorite figures from this time period. Oh, and also, um, oh my God, not... Uh, Oh my God! What is the Alain uh, 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 Renat? That's another one of the filmmakers that I really like from this period. Hmm. And yeah. just one uh. more thing that I do need to say because I did decide to to look through my uh, my notes here. I, I do think that this film kind of has one big statement it's trying to make uh, about marriage and about art, and I think it's trying to say that like to sell your art out to a producer, uh, to to sell your talent out is basically the same as selling your wife to another man. I think that's what Godard is really trying to say, that in both cases, 
uh, Michelle Piccoli's character has committed uh, a, a terrible act. He is selling out the thing that is most dear to him to uh, this terrible person, essentially, and his basically bankrupting himself morally for doing so. Mm. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that, that would make this a good uh, um, uh, uh, double feature with um, Bamboozled. Yeah, yeah, it would. On top of something. Although um, one is a bit more abrasive. Uh, a little bit more abrasive than the other one. Yeah. Which, uh, I'm not sure if anyone listening uh, picked up on that, but Bamboozled is uh, well, a pretty intense on a deeply unlikable movie on uh, which is also kind of the point exactly <laughs> of it exactly talk about a movie with absolutely zero subtlety it is in your face but i think sometimes when you have important things to discuss like that it's the only path uh, yeah. no 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 reason to, to mess around with subterfuge just aim for the juggler jugular and um Oh, what was it? Oh, and you're talking about like the whole infidelity uh, angle and like selling your wife uh, thing, but um, I don't know like what this has about me necessarily, but seeing Brigitte Bardot, uh, Brigitte Bardot, and in a movie like she just has a look of like, like like you see their dynamic t- like when they're together, n- not uh, out of and uh, after the the moment in bed where it's like. Like, I immediately has feeling of like, oh, he's uh, worried she's gonna cheat. Cause like you see, like you see him and like uh, Piccoli is you know attractive enough. He's not ugly by any stretch, but you see Bardo and it's like, you get this immediate feeling of like, oh, like this has a like I got the vibe of like, oh, he's insecure about having like a wife this gorgeous. Hmm. See, I, I I never got that myself, but maybe oh. I maybe I'm not saying you're wrong. Right. Yeah. I, it's just a, that's that's a lens that I've not looked at the film through. I've not seen the insecurity on his part there, especially considering that he he seems like he philanders, like he's flirting with the uh, with Jack Palance's yeah. secretary. Uh, yeah, but it's a it's a classic. It's okay for like a yeah, man okay to cheat. The, yeah, it's okay if the man does it, but the second the wife does it. Mm. That is wrong. Yeah. That's the, yeah, uh, I know, the six. That's the Europe in the sixties. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like maybe that's because I forgot what movie. I think it was In God Created Woman. Um, she uh, Bardot was having it on a, a very public affair with uh, her co-star in front of um, Roger Vadim the whole time. <laughs> so like I, I also like I mean she seems like someone who less loves attention. Although now it feels like she's uh, genuinely is a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Don't know if it was always like that or if it's just more prevalent now. Yeah. Whatever. You can still enjoy her movies. It's fine. It's exactly. just... Yeah. Whatever. Um, I mean, it also, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, it does, but it doesn't. You know? Yeah. Uh, to awkwardly slip out of that, this is 1963. <laughs> uh, we're gonna we uh, the pairing is with this. Sport, no, not this point in life. It's um, 
the the Seiko movie. Um, uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow is a pairing. But we'll get me and Joel will get into that in the next episode. But uh, this sixty three movies and books came out that year, and I will let you go first with your movie picks. So for movie picks, I have quite a few because a lot of good movies came out this year. First one I'm going to recommend, I mentioned Bergman before. Uh, the Silence came out this year, but I'm going to recommend before that Winter Light, which is one of my favorite Bergman films. If anyone has seen the movie that came out recently, First Reformed, uh, it basically is a remake of Winter Light. Uh, it takes the entire structure from that film, but Winter Light is a really great movie. It's... Uh, takes place only within a couple hours basically it almost unfolds in real time and it's a great story of a uh, reverend with a crisis of faith uh, other great movies that came out this year uh, Kurosawa's High and Low uh, I know that you guys definitely have talked about that before on, on your previous iteration of the podcast that's one yeah, of my favorite our... I, it, was that the first season? yes first season that was our the one and only in person recording I did well, oh. my part. Uh, Chris Funderburg came to my old house. Oh. Very nice. He's uh, very nice. Excellent. But that is a fantastic movie. And I'm going to limit it to just three. A movie that I always talk about a lot that is very... Uh, not, I, I'm going to say it's underappreciated. It doesn't get talked about a lot. Just because the filmmaker, Luis Garcia Berlanga, is not as well known outside of Spain because his movies were notoriously difficult to subtitle. Uh, But his 1963 film, The Executioner, is a great critique of fascist Spain and a really, really funny dark comedy at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, it's been on my list for a while. Uh, I I, think it's on Cartoon Channel. Yeah, I I believe it is. I, I love that movie. It is pitch black and the ending is fantastic. I, yeah, it's just I, I really, really, really highly recommend it. That's one of those like it's one of my favorite like uh, blind buy discoveries, just to uh, put in a movie having really no idea about what it is, and being completely blown away by it. So that's uh, I, I always try to recommend that at any chance I get, and you gave me a great chance to do so. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, my movie. I guess we're gonna go back and forth. Um, you're gonna make a couple '63 uh, uh, pairings, so I'll only pick two. One is this sporting life. This sporting life, the Lindsay Anderson movie. Oh. I believe it's his first feature, and it stars um, Richard Harris. And it was. The first time I really noticed Richard Harris, because I'd seen, like, um... Because he's the first Dumbledore, and he's in some other, like, big stuff. But this is the first time I was like, holy shit, this guy is amazing. And he's a rugby player, and all about, all about class, and I think it's what they call, like, the kitchen sink drama... Um, uh, thing that was happening and with English uh, movies at the time. But, uh... And he's this coal miner, he comes a rugby star, and it's all about class and trying to move up and how, like, you can't really move up in class regardless of, like, how much money or status you have. You'll still be 
you know, if you're born poor, you you will always be seen as poor, and it's pretty upsetting. And but like, and there's some really great rugby sequences where you see um Richard Harris legit like playing rugby, and it's like full contact, and uh, it's just amazing seeing like a like a legit movie star also be like, yeah, I'll, I'll play rugby for real. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I've never seen that movie. I've heard great things about it. That's that's something that's kind of been like on my uh, to check out list, but I've never gotten around to it. So I'm going to take that recommendation to heart because that sounds really good. I actually never knew what it was quite about. Uh, yeah. Um, and you don't even have to like uh, like sports that much to really get into it. Like, I don't understand rugby, <laughs> but this movie made me go like, man, I want to watch I want to watch rugby now. <laughs> So the, the 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 one of the reasons that movie's always kind of been on my radar is the Decemberists mm-hmm. have a song called "The Sporting Life," and I assumed that oh. it had some sort of reference to the movie. But based on the description of the movie, no, it does not. No, oh. um, probably not. I don't know. I think it's just a saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lindsay Anderson is a fascinating guy. I, I I like everything I've seen by him. He did If, right? Yes. Okay, that's the only Lindsay Anderson movie I've seen. Yeah, I think... Uh, yeah, he is dead. I was right. Oh, he died the same year that uh, Fernando Ray died. Oh. Anyway, uh, what's your next one? My next one, I'm going to recommend the Czech science fiction film Ikari XB1. One of the first uh, serious science fiction movies uh, to... to that is older than 2001 a space odyssey it still is a little bit flying saucery but it's set in the year uh, at the 23rd century i think or the 25th century something like that and it's about the uh the first manned expedition to uh alpha centauri it's a very interesting little exploration of that and you can clearly tell that it had a huge influence on uh stanley kubrick when it came to making 2001 a lot of the shots are very similar, and also the set design clearly inspired Star Wars as well, because it looks like they're inside the Death Star multiple times throughout the film. Hmm. All right. And my other one is a movie I have problems with, but overall I really do enjoy it. It's um, Lilies of the Field, the Sidney Portia movie, the movie that he... I won an Oscar for and St. Porte is someone I overall really like however um, he got stuck with like playing like the respectable black man type things which was like kind of the only thing he was really offered at the time so on one level you can't really blame him for taking those parts for being like well it's either either that or like play a butler basically so Mm -hmm. it's like but uh, the movie is he becomes he what was it like he goes out west and he ends up on a farm uh, like slash convent and he helps out these nuns from Eastern Europe and it's about their friendship and it, it, it's for its time it's 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 progressive a little bit but still a little like he uh, he has to do all the physical labor and work in the field and stuff and it doesn't feel icky the way like it it could but it still f- falls in that category of like 
Well, Hollywood still is trying to figure out what to do with black people, so mm-hmm. you know it, it's a step forward. But uh, it's a genuinely this good movie that I feel like people have forgotten about that should be seen. But you also need to also realize, you know, uh, things were still not great if you are not white working in Hollywood. And this is one of the few times it's like them, like Hollywood, really making a step forward to be like, let's try to be a little more inclusive, but still, you know, not really realize uh, they're not being that inclusive or uh, forward thinking. But uh, it definitely is worth watching and also uh, seeing Poor Day, like, in this era was always, like, every movie is, every performance, I should say, is great. Not every movie is equal. Mm. I've not seen this one, so that's another uh, recommendation I will be taking. All right, and that's the end of mine. All right. Um, I I can recommend more. I, I mentioned Alain Renat before. His film Muriel is really great. I, I won't get into that too much because I think it's uh, something that is worth kind of uh, experiencing yourself. He's playing around with time and memory a lot in that. And I believe that you will be discussing the film Judex later in the podcast, so I won't talk too much uh, about that. I think you picked that one. Yeah, I think I did. So I will save my thoughts on Judex for uh, that recording. But also, Judex is a great film. All right. Is that all of it? That's all. I'm done. Okay. All right. Uh... This is breaking the rules slightly, but uh, I have an African novel. I know, shocking. <laughs> I'm bringing this up, but it's another novel by Cyprian Quincy. It was republished, I believe, in internationally in 1963, uh, but first was published in 1962. It's Burning Grass. Like all of his novels, it's like maybe 80, 80 to 100. Um, all his novels were pretty short and like they're basically like now to call call novellas or something or novelettes or some shit but they're they're quick short reads he was really good at just talking about contemporary Africa and this one is about a Fulani family in northern I think it was northern Nigeria but um yeah uh, I really love Cyprian Quincy's uh, books I wish they were reprint like there was a big reprint with like fancy new covers and like he'd get some more attention because uh, um, uh, Chinua kind of gets all the credit for like the literature movement in Nigeria at the time which he was great but at the same time there were a bunch of other people and uh, I feel like uh, everyone else kind of gets overlooked and forgotten except for you know Echebe which uh, just like everyone just should like look into some of the other African and Nigerian writers from that era because uh, there's just a lot of great work about um, you know life in like colonial and post-colonial Nigeria and like Africa as a whole and uh, a lot of these books are pretty short too so if you're a slow reader like I am <laughs> it's a big old plus and uh, yeah the book Burning Grass um, I'm pretty sure it's out of print, but you can buy, find a copy for a little cheap. Excellent. All right, that's it. Yeah, I don't know if you're a big reader, but 
I need to I need to get better with reading. I uh, I, I recently I, I I use this as my excuse, and I've had glasses for like three years now, so I can't use it as an excuse any longer. But I used to read, and my eyesight got worse, and I was like, ah, my eyes just get tired. I'll get glasses eventually. I'll get glasses eventually, and I put it off for years. I finally have them, but I'm not in the habit of read, reading anymore. I'm far more in the habit of watching movies. So hmm. that's something that I need to rectify with more books. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, my reading has kind of slowed pretty much. Uh, pand- when the pandemic hit, my reading kind of hit a big old uh, pause because I kind of lost the focus to uh, stay to concentrate on that, yeah. which was ironic because then I had all the free time, but I had none of the like mental focus to actually do that anymore. Yep, that's uh, that. That's what happens during extremely stressful times, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, it's it's slowly coming back. I just started the Changeling. It's about the 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 aftermath of the death of Josie Utami, hmm. written by his best friend. Who it, it's a it, it's an autobiographical novel about his best friend dealing with the fact that um, uh, Juzo died, and he's trying to deal with life after like losing uh, a, li- a lifelong friend. Hmm. And it's not so subtly about Juzo Tommy. And if you know about his career and his life, then like you can see all the parallels. And it's very, uh, at least for me, it was not subtle picking up on like who represents who mm-hmm. in it. But it's a great book. Really depressing. Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, um, this comes out in August. Uh, do you have podcast appearances that? Uh, around that time or in recent ones what have i done recently i'm trying to think i feel like it's been a bit since i've actually recorded a podcast the most recent one that i did was an episode of wrong reel with uh james hancock and uh and martin uh marcus pin uh where we discussed the works of jean cocteau that that we recorded that back in may so obviously august a bit later than that if anyone hasn't listened to that i'd recommend it and I don't know what my schedule is. I definitely have a few that I'm working with people to schedule, but I don't want to guarantee anything will be out before this episode airs. All right. Um, I was just, I just recorded, actually, uh, one week ago today with Grumpire. It was, um, their format is you pick a movie you don't like and pick a pair with a movie you do like. That's a, that does a similar thing. I picked Mandy for why I don't like and I saw a devil for what I do like, and that was a fun like two hour chat about like what what works for me in one and what and what does not work for me in the other, and that will come out in the future at some point. I don't know when. I look forward to that. And yeah, it was a fun chat. Uh, what else? Oh yeah, um, I'm gonna be on projection booth, and um. Cause I've been kind of uh, 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 pestering in the Facebook group uh, the host Mike White to do more African movies for maybe three years, four years, and he's finally doing it. And he and he invited me on three of the four movies he's gonna he's gonna cover. So I will be in uh, the Tukibuki one, the uh, uh, Tukibuki then. Darat uh, and uh, Dakan, 
uh, the Khan from 1997 uh, from um, Guinea because um, uh, there's other, a couple other movies called the Khan this is the one that means destiny from the <laughs> late 90s just so people can have clarification which one I'm talking about and uh, yeah so that will be fun to uh, finally get on that show and talk about um, some movies that need to be talked about and if you do watch uh, Tukibuki there's graphic on screen animal death I'm tired of uh, it, it, when it comes up I, I kind of feel need to explain it so people can not be um, too surprised when it happens in, in the opening of it <laughs> <laughs> it's you're right it's very graphic <laughs> yeah but, uh, yeah, so that will be coming up, and, um, um, alright, uh, Dave, are you on social media and other shit? Am I ever on social media? You can find me on Twitter, as well as Letterboxd, at Cinema versus Dave, that is Cinema vs. Dave. Alright, and, uh, the, coming up will be a second half with Joel, who... As of now, I have no idea what he thinks of the movie, so <laughs> this will be an interesting um, uh, chat with him to see. Like, I, I, I hope that so. the second half of the episode isn't just a, a, a hate stream on contempt, <laughs> but we'll find out. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We will, we will find out, and that is all. Thank you for, uh, thanks for your time, Dave. Thank you for having me. This is great. This is the second half of the Contempt episode. You just heard me talk to Dave about uh, Contempt, uh, which I think he loves. I haven't really listened to to the audio yet. But, um, <laughs> okay, so Contempt. How would you describe Godard's uh, fourth or fifth movie? I forgot which. I think that uh, this is... He's getting a little self-referential. The artist, the... The, the troubled writer, the, the Hollywood system trying to corrupt and misunderstanding like uh, the naturalism of, uh, you know, filmmaking, making it into this like sordid thing. But what I really want to say about this movie is that the sub, the, the real title should be called Bridget Bardot's Ass. Yeah. Because there's a lot of Bridget Bardot's just bare butt in this movie and i was like hey okay i'm i listen i'm a heterosexual male Mm -hmm. i get it come on (laughs) (laughs) apparently that was forced on him by american producers oh my god so it was it's the scene where jack when jack palance's name showed up in the credits my Mm -hmm. my wig fell off and i didn't realize i was wearing a wig no, <laughs> uh, but the the scene where he's watching the film reel and there's a nude woman swimming, and he's like, oh, 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 I don't I don't know about this, but you know this is good for you and me. But how's this how's this gonna fit the movie? I was like, yeah, and that's basically how I was reacting, um, with her just lying on the bed with the person she hated or whatever, whatever the plot was. Okay.
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 sorry. I didn't know uh, uh, the ghost of Jack P- Palance was here. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. You are my number one screenwriter. Yeah. <sighs> All right. So what do you like about... Um, well, first, did you like this movie? I don't know. Um, uh, it's it's in the middle of the Godard. Like, I I think the cinematography is like amazing. Like, they they get some wherever they're filming. It's it's pretty stunning. Like, especially at the end when they're on that island. But like, I think even when they spend a good chunk inside the the loft that uh, Bardot mm-hmm. and. Uh, is it uh, Piccoli, yeah, right, Piccoli. are sharing together. The the use of space in the camera, like her just being present and radiating while him, you know, being this basic bro who doesn't talk, take off his hat because he's balding or whatever is going on, even in the bathtub. Um, and I'm trying to think, was Piccoli balding? Because, like, uh, a young girl's a Rochefort after this, and I don't think he's maybe he's wearing a wig in that i'm trying to think also he's in boonwell stuff too but he's in la belle noisse yeah but he's like an old older man in that well i mean he's yeah i, I you know honestly in the in in la belle uh, in the what was it called the uh the beautiful troublemaker. troublemaker beautiful troublemaker he doesn't look as old as uh no, no, you just—you're right. He, he's an old man. I'm thinking yeah. of the the guy who's like their friend who comes over for dinner. No, he mean, actually kind of looks mean, like a younger version of Michael Piccoli. <laughs> and Piccoli, he's um, he died last year, and he was like ninety or ninety-one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, by the time like he did uh, Labelle, uh, noise use, whatever how you say it in French, yeah. um, he was in his sixties. Yeah. Yeah, um, he maybe okay. So if he's in that one. He's in this one. Maybe he only likes to be in movies with naked women. Mm. Oh, he's in uh, Belle de Jour. There's no naked women in the Young Girls of Rochefort, though. No, but uh, I don't know. Like, That's my, the one thing that movie's missing. <laughs> <laughs> my biggest, I guess, complaint with the movie is Bacoli feels miscast. Because that's the big thing me and Dave harped on was like, because. Uh, Usually Piccoli doesn't play a submissive character like this. Usually he's more active, a little more mm. aggressive. Uh, or like, you know, it's, and here's this like, he's like, okay, fine. I'll, I'll do what you want. And like, he's kind of, you know, he's weak-willed. And seeing him in this type of role is like, I don't really, like, he's good. But at the same time, like, I feel like Jean-Louis would have been better as like this kind of intense uh, like screenwriter guy who's being pushed around. Mm. Now, what if Jack Palance had played his role and they'd switch? They'd switch roles. <laughs> that that could have worked. The, the man's got the gravitas. Uh, yeah. What is the wife's name here? Let's see. Uh, Camille. Camille, you've got to stop lying around and uh, treat me like the man I am. Uh, I need it. I need your love. 
Oh, I, I think that he does just fine in it. Like, I, I guess I'm not as familiar with the other things. Like, he's he's the music music shop owner in yes. Young Girls, right? Yeah, that's so him. So he's not he, excellent singing voice. Uh, I, I, think it's, I doubt that was his real voice. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I, excellent I, pretending at singing voice. <laughs> he's a great actor. You know, he can uh, lip sync. Yeah, but he's not... Uh, He's not out there dancing. He's he's his his part in that is kind of like a lonely, reserved person who, uh, you know, his lost mm. love kind of thing. And and I feel like in this movie, his lost love is two things. It's obviously the escaping affection of his wife, uh, if if he ever had affection with her, because he seems to think of her as a tool or. I don't know what what his problem is. Like he's trying to give her a level of independence, but not realizing that she also wants him to protect and want her, and you know, like be present and not just in his head. And so he's got an aimless like, you know, I don't know if I need to do this. Like, why don't you love me? Kind of whiny thing that. Uh, is all practically refreshing compared to the other uh, French New Wave we've been mm-hmm. watching because most of the men are like, well, of course you want my dick. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's kind of like, I don't want to use my penis, but I do wish you would at least offer for my penis to be used. But I'm really thinking about the Odyssey and like the way like i want to be a screenwriter or do i want to be a playwright like who am i and the whole time she's like pay attention you fuck (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean uh with a you know if if your wife was um bridget bridget bardot it's like i would pay attention probably because she'd say something racist (laughs) yeah exactly until she's like women's rights are bad <laughs> yeah yeah em- emigration yeah. is bad for France yeah yeah. I, I, yeah you know she stopped acting a long time ago that's that's basically we stopped caring about what was going on with her unfortunately mm, and, yeah I, I mean I, I think of like Vivian Kubrick which do you know what happened to her no uh, she's a QAnon right wing person now nice yeah, kind of, you know, great that it, what she turned into. Well, when the world's burning, you got to decide if you want to be in the fire or if you want to be underneath the fire or on top of the fire. I don't know what my <laughs> metaphor is. Yeah. The one lighting it, I guess, would be the other thing. I don't know. <sighs> what they don't realize is that they're covered in gasoline also. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yes, I, I didn't have any problem with his character. Okay, yeah, but uh, I did have problems with the movie in general. Yeah, I mean, like, I, yeah, I, I was speaking in terms of like I just you no, know, I think Bacoli is a different type of role in here. It felt like, uh, I don't know, it felt weird, but it worked. Where like mm-hmm. I don't know, I like, like Jean Pelomondo would not work in this role because he comes off as stupid to me. <laughs> like, which I think. How did he? How did he keep acting? He's tall and handsome. <laughs> That's why. Oh, okay. Probably why. But 
that, you know uh, who else is tall and handsome? Jack, Jack Palance. That is true. I didn't realize he was that tall until I saw this movie. Mm. You know, like, um, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen Possession, the Sam Neill movie. But no, this, I have not. Uh, we might do an episode on it, because I realize that that is a French movie. Excellent. And it, that'll, that'll finally force me to watch it, because I keep putting it off. Do you, uh, yeah, uh, I want to get, a, there are a couple people I have in mind for that, but I haven't talked to them yet. Uh, Gina. Uh, maybe. Maybe I. I miss Gina. Gina. <laughs> but uh, uh, with possession, like it's a this, it feels like it took contempt, but I was like, what if it's even more unpleasant between the married couple and there's a penis monster. Mm. Although you could argue Jack Palance is also a penis monster in this <laughs> Jack Palance is definitely a penis monster he, he's the rawhead Rex of this movie mm. yeah yeah. Like, the, the like pushy like I'm going to a presumption thing but, but the thing about his character in this movie is mm. like yes he seems to be a controlling piece of shit telling, telling Fritz Lang what to do <laughs> who the fuck are you will you get off you piece of shit this is the argument I was talking about when uh we were talking about uh, Vivre Seville and uh, comparing it to Passionate Joan of Arc. Like, where the fuck do you get off, Godard? And I'm talking Jack Pallets. That's fucking Fritz Lang you're talking to. <laughs> yeah. That's fucking Fritz Lang. <laughs> I know, it's great. I- I'd never seen what it looked like before and- until this, and it's like, oh, he seems like a cool dude. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Very affable. <laughs> like, like he- I'd like to hang out, hang out with talk with him, except he's long dead. Yeah, like uh, he's my favorite part of the movie by far, because like he's he's lively, he's funny, and he's kind of like I don't give a fuck. I'm just going to do what I feel like doing. Yeah, that's uh, the old man, older man character might be a trope in uh, French New Wave movies. I'm not I'm not sure yet, but like uh, to go back to Vivre Seville, they've got the old man in the cafe who's just mm-hmm. a, a random character but he's this this kind of fount of opinion and wisdom at the very least yeah and in here fritz lang is like well you know well, you know a lot of talking about like the how much of an asshole jack palance is but also mm-hmm. talking about his opinions on the odyssey which i i don't want to know about the odyssey i don't want to know about any old story being adapted and and people's like interpretations of what the heroes or the villains or the the women in there like this thing like i feel like that's such a art house cliche kind of thing but Mm -hmm. it it ends up working so well in this movie because of like the fourth wall breaking and the sidestepping of like just talking about philosophy but instead putting in the context of adaptation of story and interpretation of artwork hmm. kind of thing that it's fine yeah <laughs> yeah um did you uh we're gonna jump around because contempt like I, I still can't really pinpoint like how to even talk about this movie exactly still um sure. uh, during the argument like the half hour long argument segment did you notice the not so subtle uh costuming that was going on during that sequence the not so subtle what uh costume 
costuming. No. What do you mean? Um, Pacoli is dressed like a Greek god, kind of like an Odyssey, and Brigitte Bardot is wearing a a a wig of like a pixie cut, kind of like how um uh, I think it was a pixie cut. It, and which has a wig of a hairstyle that um, Anna Karina has. Oh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like uh, Godard, the way that uh, Tarantino's always telling women to stick their feet in the camera. He's like, I need you to look more like my wife. <laughs> yeah. Put on this wig. And apparently some of the some of the lines are direct things that like they said to each other during arguments. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it, so that's 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 it's about him. Piccoli is him. Yeah, basically. Uh, the thing, the third wall breaking with the cameras, like uh, the I I like the shot where she's on the boat and the mm. camera is pointing at her, and then you see the shot of the camera moving forward, and it's obvious that the camera that moves forward is the one that's looking at her except for they come in and they go you're in the scene you need to move (laughs) therefore breaking us out of the idea that we're watching a movie being made except that we're also going back to the concept that we're watching a movie being made within (laughs) the movie it's i'm I'm enjoying the playfulness of that Uh, so far it's not like on the nose yeah i mean it's less on the nose well, compare uh, that aspect is less on the nose than the Joan of Arc um, stuff and My right. Life to Live. Yeah. And it feels more, well, I mean, this movie's more playful and light. Uh, even though it's also uh, very, you know, it's about, like, partially about like, a marriage breaking up and, be, and ending. Uh, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, like, uh, but also you have like you know French Lang kind of like this kind of like uh, carefree like artist old man who's like who's, who'll do what he feels like doing regardless of what you know the, the giant Jack Plants tells him what to do I, he's he's playing a caricature himself yeah. of you know I don't know what version of Fritz Lang this is but like you can see based on the footage that he's showing that it is he's this is not a Fritz Lang movie that we're watching clips of we're watching Godard's like trying to make it look like an arty thing the yeah. the statues with the makeup on them you know the uh when we see what i assume is yeah, it, uh, it, like uh, uh Dave did Dave's more familiar with like silent cinema and stuff like that he did specify it like this is not really Fritz Lang style that you see mm-hmm. in the it's just kinda like um Fritz Lang was as a stand in for like film history. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. Palance's character is just gonna roll over it because he's paying for it. It's his vision there, right? Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't matter if it was an adaptation of of an ancient work, the Odyssey, like it's now I've got the money, and what I the story I want to tell is mine. So it doesn't matter. You're a director, I hired you. You're a screenwriter, I hired you. That's the Odyssey. It's me now. Hmm. By the way, can I make out with your wife? 
Not not that I blame him. It's Bridget Bardot. Yeah. But that's okay. Uh, I find I I found that second part uh, the the first time when when he like let leaves her alone with him. I'm like, okay, well, he doesn't really know what's going on. You can you can excuse, but the second time oh, when okay, interesting. Uh, Dave had the opposite opinion of like he knows exactly what's gonna what 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 could happen. Like like he, sure. he thinks he's planning. Like uh, Dave's interpretation is he's planning all that to happen so he can can get more work basically. Except he doesn't want the work, like. He thinks he wants the work because he wants to keep her happy, like as as one of them lays out, like with a with a wife as as beautiful as that, you've got to make money to keep her happy, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's also playing off of that idea when he says, like, no, no, go go hang out with with Jack. Especially the second time is when it's like. It's obvious that if you... She doesn't not want to go. Like, you don't know what happened last time when they went to that garden beforehand. But she was uncomfortable with it. And she told you so many ways, if not literally. I think she does literally say, I don't want to. Yeah, the movie's pretty not subtle with that with that aspect. I mean, it's, it's as subtle as a heart attack sometimes. Yeah. You you can't see the pain in this woman. You're you're wondering, like he is so involved in himself and whatever misery he's going through because he thinks it's it's all happening to him that he's not going to notice this other person that that cares for him enough to make the sacrifice he's forcing on her, but cannot make a sacrifice of himself because he, yeah, what what is he trying to do? What is his goal? Uh, when when she when they sanctimoniously when she sanctimoniously dies at the end, I I fail to see why that happened. Like, was it further punishment on Piccoli's character, or or was it a message, you know, about the film industry, like? It, it's a it's a brutal way to end the movie. Yeah, it just feels like an expression of rage and frustration, mm-hmm. but also it feels misguided, but not with like, but not misguided like, like you know during the Spike Lee season we cu- we saw a lot of like misguided weird Spike decisions, where it's like at least there's like crazy odd stuff in this, and this is like there's not that much crazy or weird things in it besides like. Fritzling and like the playfulness of like of like fourth wall, but like uh, and an incredible amount of nudity. Yeah, and it's just kind of like this weird. Like I overall like it just fine. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm in no rush to watch it again. Well, maybe like the uh, Fritzling scenes, but like that might honestly be the only reason. Because like outside of that. Um, I find like the like the Godard stand-in uh, to just be like kind of like it, it it works well enough, but it's kind of boring. Yeah, it's it's he's a whatever. He's a he's a wishwash. He's a uh, he's kind of like uh, to 
like a, a much better movie about a man who is lost within himself uh like uh, eight and a half mm-hmm. you know just kind of like dreamly walking through the existence of life and interacting with people in an Italian movie, Italian women are so independent that it doesn't matter what he's going to do. If they want to go do something, they're going to go fucking do it. But French women in, in these movies end up being so uh, subservient to whatever guy and whatever concept of, of what men are going to want that uh, I don't feel like we've really seen any grand independence outside of the soft skin. The soft skin is becoming the most remarkable of those movies. Uh, because, I guess you know, Brian at Moore, the end when yeah. the wife is like, fuck you, and uses a <laughs> shotgun, spoiler for that movie, for, sorry. It's like, oh, that is that is a grand act. Yeah. Like, yeah, I guess Bride were Black, but that's also kind of a weird movie. Right, and, and even in that one, it's... It, it doesn't feel shocking because it starts off with her being already at the edge of, of whatever sanity she had. Like, mm, in, yeah. in in the soft skin, when it comes to the conclusion it does, it's like, thank you. Thank you. Not not to say Bride Work Black, you're not like, yeah, I get what you're doing. But in for contempt, we don't know any of the internal monologue of what's going on with Bridget Bardo's character. And she goes off with Jack Pounce, and, like I said, it killed in that way. And it's it just feels... Yeah, it feels like the director thinks he's punishing himself or, or he's making a statement on, like, I'm no longer going to have Americans and I'm not going to listen to women or something like that. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I... Yeah, I don't really know. I know people who like think this movie is flawless and perfect, and like, and who are in love with it. And it's just like I, like I wish I could see that because I. Yeah, they only remember the first three minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was like, I don't know. This is like another example, like with Godard. Like I, I just don't, I just don't see what other people see, which is fine. I'm giving it a fair shot. It's just like, with with contempt, especially like there's just like a a for me it's a a like a brick wall between me and and, and like like really getting what it, what it, what's supposed to be. <laughs> I I think the more masturbatory his filmmaking is, the less interesting I find it, and. This you know not not to mention the nudity again, but uh, the nudity, but also being a film that seems to be about himself and what he's dealing with, it, it's a little bit that that's what turns me off about it. I do think it is incredibly solidly made. Like like I said, I think the the third wall or fourth wall breaking is is very well done. I think cinematography is fantastic. And I think that everyone is acting at the top of the game. Even even Jack Palance, who's always felt like a a cartoon character to me, <laughs> fits in because he's he's supposed to be like okay. the asshole. Yeah, he's like he's Hollywood personified. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. uh, even though he's uh, you know I guess like the villain of the movie to put 
simple terms, but uh, like he still is like kind of like really fun at the same time because like uh, I don't know, in theory it shouldn't work with with how cartoony he he takes it, but yeah, yeah. It, 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 the more I think about it, the more there is this is a odd mix because you have like. Of characters, because you have Pardo, who's not given much to do besides be be hot and and naked, and then you have Piccoli being like playing against type and being a little more submissive and inactive, and you have uh, French slang being uh, like you know like this like not agent of chaos, but like this like this element of fun of like eh, uh you know I could do what I feel like doing. And he, you know, I guess like Agent Chaos a little bit, and then you have you yeah. know, um, you know, uh, uh, and, and Jack Palance just being this like insane, over the top like uh, character of an, of American filmmaking, and like and like and like in describing it, it's like this should clash and not work and just be kind of like an, an incoherent mess. Even though, like, I don't get what the movie is going for exactly, or maybe I, I just, or maybe I do get it. I just think it's like kind of dumb. Uh, you know, like, like it, 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 it just works as a movie. <laughs> There's a review on Litterbox that just says "BRB mad at all women." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't. I don't think that there's a there's a complicated like. I think just in talking with you about it, like I think we've basically figured out what he was trying to say. Yeah. Uh, did you I, to to go slightly off subject? Did you feel any Almodovar in this? Uh, the color uh, use, yes. Mm. Almodovar. Well, he'd be more sexual with like the sexy stuff, like the sex, like the new thing. This was. Basically, he he is told like, yeah, because uh, he didn't want Bridget Bardot, and he had to use her. And the producers were like, oh yeah, and she has to be naked in it too, and so, <laughs> and that's why like the nudity and sexuality feels so stale. Did she know about that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think she knew, but uh, but that, that's why like it's so kind of stale and like, it has this element of, like, why is this here? It's because like yeah. it. It wasn't supposed to be there. Like, you know, the for him to make this movie, he is like he had to make that sacrifice of like, fine, I'll put a a naked lady in this movie. It's whatever. Yeah. It, well, that's like uh, Martin Scorsese's first movie. Who's that knocking at my door? Like, they <laughs> they would only uh, let him make it if he inserted scenes of uh, of the sexual nature with nudity in it. And that's I think that's an excellent movie. That just happens to have a, a weird scene where Harvey Harvey Keitel is bouncing around a room with a na- naked lady or two, and uh, like it, at least you can say in this the when the nudity is going on with her it's it's artfully done, yeah. um, and there's like it feels intimate when he's talking about what he loves about her body and and things like that. Like I, I don't have such a problem with it, but to me it feels stale. What the thing that bothers me about it is it makes her character seem like she 
what 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 I would think is like a stereo the stereotype of a French woman like yes I love you but I actually hate you which is going on in this thing yeah. you know and it it works it doesn't work it, it's okay yeah I don't yeah. I don't think this is a throwaway movie like if somebody was like should I watch Contempt I'd say yeah yeah it's 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 definitely worth watching yeah it's like uh, on top of all the other things like my biggest problem is because uh, uh, my life to live does this thing but it's done in such a beautiful perfect way where like the, the scoreboard play on a shot of Anna Karina uh, like looking mm. like sad and intense and like has you know being like what the fuck am I going to do with my life mm. and then the score will stop and then it gives you time to sit and reflect on like what emotions she, what, uh, what emotions she's feeling, what you're feeling, what the movie is, what's happening in the movie, and like it's 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 amazing. That's how well he uses music in those moments in my life to live. In contempt, he does it, but it, but I don't feel that emotional connection. It feels uh, it's a much colder movie, and so like doing that like same trick with the music, having like the score play. Uh, on like what's supposed to be uh, like an intimate moment but there's no real intimacy uh, or emotional um, element and it kind of feels like, like like he's just fucking around and being like oh yeah that's a thing I do in my movies just like play with like ha- uh, uh, play with like music in that specific way Using the same piece of music over and over again in the movie uh, is something I don't get. Because at a certain point... And it, the way the music like just starts and then will just suddenly stop. Yeah. Like the, or will come in again. It's like, I don't know what you're trying to tell me. That's what I'm talking about and, with this movie. Because my life lived... Yeah, that's what I'm talking my about. My life lived, it works so much better. Yeah. And here's just yeah. like, I don't... What are you doing? I don't get what you're. What, why that's being done here exactly? Maybe it should be called irritation instead of contempt, because <laughs> like they're. I mean, that's it is a joke, but it's also not a joke because there are like these people are aching for. They're aching for sexual freedom. They're aching for creative freedom. Like they're aching for like recognition of emotional needs and physical needs and and things like that and nobody is getting fulfilled in this movie at all and when we think that at least that american's gonna get fulfilled because he's he's driving off with the girl they're promptly murdered you know yeah it's like maybe somebody's gonna get off in this movie oh no they died (laughs) i don't know in the, there's, yeah. there's, there's a, there's a finger that is that is on a trigger the entire movie, and it's it's itching like it's they're either gonna break up or the movie's gonna be over or they're gonna punch somebody and nobody ever does anything until the end. Yeah, uh, I didn't say this in the first half, but uh, I when I first when I started it, I got halfway through, and I was like, mm. what? I halfway through, and I was like, what? What is this movie? This is frustrating. This is irritating, and so, uh, I, I so I didn't so I instead of like splitting it up into two parts, uh, just for like, 
uh, notes and research purposes, I did just out of like, like, like with Antonio anywhere. It's like I just can't keep watching this right now. This, this, this is this annoying me. And then, but like, unlike I love Antura, when I finished it, I didn't feel like uh, I. I'm not I wasted my time, but I didn't have that feeling of like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, of like, uh, of like, I don't know what with this, but like, it, like, it, the as a second, like the second half worked better. And having time in between helps, but like this is a movie that I would really struggle to sit through in one sitting, because like, like the first half, sometimes bad just like irritates me, and I can't really figure mm-hmm. out what it is about it. You know me. I, I like love Laventura, whatever it is, and uh, the, but what works for that is that there's a, a central kind of mysterious ambiance about what's going on, like, and this doesn't have that. Where it's it's not as complicated a plot as that. The I, I think the thing that we're supposed to be like, what is the reason is her, he keeps bringing up, like, why did you fall out of love with me? And she's like, oh, there's a specific reason, but I'm never going to tell you. It's like, what's the mystery? Like, the fact is, I don't care. I can see a lot of reasons why she wouldn't <laughs> love this guy anymore. It doesn't have to be one specific reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And, like, talking about, like, the uh, parallel of, like, uh, Pelcoli being, like, the Godard parallel. I think having John Pelbamondo as a parallel wouldn't work because it's like I've seen what Godard looks like. That that, that that's just pure fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah, it's magic of movies, but still, like I I wouldn't feel like I wouldn't buy John Paul as a stand-in for him. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you think Almodovar looks like uh, uh, what's his name uh, Antonio? Yeah. Uh, I know they, I don't think they were, like, officially a couple, but they did allegedly, you know, hook up and stuff. Mm-hmm. When That's Spain, you can do whatever you want. Uh, that is true. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, Ma- the Madonna documentary, uh, oh, what is the name of that documentary? Is Almondarver in it? Uh, it has oh, I think it has what's his name Antonio Banderas in it oh. and, but it, it's the it's got a the person she was dating at the time who is in Warren it's got Warren Beatty in it oh. uh, she, it, she talks about <laughs> wanting to hook up with Antonio Banderas and they like go to dinner and his wife is there with him and his wife is like so giving i think she's giving him dirty looks or something like that or like super cold and later she's like and he came up to me and was like oh no no it doesn't matter that i'm married uh every you know everyone fools around on the side or something like that Mm. (laughs) uh (laughs) yeah i don't know why i'm talking about that but yes uh what was it I just rewatched Machete Kills uh, last night. Um, it's not good. Uh, I forgot. You know, I, I forgot. I feel about Robert Rodriguez. Yeah, I'm. I'm starting to feel that way about him too. <laughs> uh, I'm not here to talk about that, but Antonio Banderas is in it, and he's uh, one of the best parts by far. 
That's cool. Yeah. Is he playing uh, Desperado? Uh, no. Uh, he's El Chameleon, I think, four, because there's an assassin character, the the chameleon, who mm. is Walton Goggins, then Cuba Gooden Jr., then Lady Gaga, then Antonio Banderas. I think I hate this movie. I haven't seen it. Uh, yeah. Uh, it makes me not want to watch any more Robert Rodriguez. I like, go back to my high school days and watch, like, From Dusk Will Dawn and stuff like that. Because it just kind of made me like, oh, maybe he wasn't as good a filmmaker as I remembered. I don't know. He, I've always had the opinion <laughs> that I, I don't like it, but I do think that he... He has talent, and that it works for other people. Like the favorite, my favorite movie of his is Sin City, which was basically storyboarded out for him and uh, done. You know, he he picked good actors for the roles that he was picking. Yeah. Uh, the other things that I've watched that he's done have always left me feeling kind of flat. Despite despite how exciting that they're you know with explosions or with like body horror or other things like that it was, for some reason it just I don't know yeah uh, kind of like Godard <laughs> yeah yeah he's a Mexican Godard <laughs> no he uh, he wishes wait Godard is Godard Godard still alive right yeah he's on Instagram okay maybe he can handle uh, Alita Battle Angel 2 uh, <laughs> I'd love to see that. Uh, you know, there's a Godard film that was uh, distributed by Canon Films. Oh no! Uh, a King Lear adaptation. Oh no! Now I feel like I gotta see that. Does it have? Uh... Uh, I I don't know. I want to know the story behind how Golden Globus got involved with Godard. That has to. That's either the most boring story in the world or the most exciting story in the world. Yeah. It's either got John Claude Van Damme in it, or it's got guy from Death Wish, whose name I'm drawing, Charles Bronson. Do you think Bronson would work with Godard? Come on. At Bronson the, at, is at that stage of his career, absolutely not. Yeah, but but younger Bronson is such a surprisingly good actor when you like yeah, when he, when you actually watch something like when you know like something even like Once Upon a Time in the West, it's yeah. like holy shit, this guy's actually fucking great. <laughs> yeah, when he gave a shit, it's like, oh, he's one of the best. And then yeah. then he got middle age and stopped caring. <laughs> yeah. Which uh, I'm we not, still love him though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Jack Palance, uh, he's in Hawk the Slayer. Uh, right. Which yes, he is. which is a better uh, Jack Palance performance, Hawk, or Contempt? That's <laughs> that's comparing apples and stairwells. That's a, okay. A, you know they're not even the same. They're not even fruit. They're one of them's a structure and one of them is a something that grew. And in case you're wondering, mm-hmm. the apple is uh, Hawk the Slayer. Okay. Where Jack Palance plays the role he was born to play, which is a one-eyed, medieval, crazy sword dude who wants to kill his brother and occasionally goes to a witch lady that, and she rubs stuff on his face. Okay. Hawk the Slayer is amazing. Uh, I, yeah. I, and by amazing, I mean terrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh. 
Okay, I just wanted yeah, uh, your opinion of which was the How the Slayer has better music than Contempt. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, the the disco song really is magical. Big time. I remember. Uh, do you remember Blood and Black Lace at all? Uh, a little bit. I think the house from Blood and Black Lace, um, one of the houses, I can't remember which murder, I think it's the woman with the, the look like Joan Jett. The house where she is killed, I think, is used in this movie. Mm. There's a house that looks strikingly similar to a house from uh, Blood and Black Lace that has uh, a very famous murder um, scene and, and body removal scene. Mm. That's it. Yeah. Oh. It was filmed in Italy. You, you, no. you just totally rang a bell for me, mm-hmm. which is like uh, uh, to go back to what I was saying about Almodovar, like uh, the the discussion that's happening in the apartment, like the, the way he... he Godard uses like the the space like mm-hmm. not not just sticking to a track but like following to people to other rooms, and using multiple angles to to show off different places, giving giving it like this three D thing. I think Almodovar does an excellent job at that. When, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm thinking of like timing up, timing down. Like I I get a feeling for the the place that that woman is stuck in. And, yeah. And. Uh, yeah, some other some other stuff. Yeah, broken embraces. Oh god, that movie destroyed me. <laughs> Especially when when you learn why the movie is called Broken Embraces, it's like, oh fuck, that is that is too much right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else was it? Oh, Carlo Carlo Ponti produced um, Contempt, and he's a big producer of like uh, European movies and like Italian and French movies. And he's a name that keeps popping up in this season. And, and I realize I've seen a lot of movies he produced, but I don't know anything about Ponty. I'm sure there's... Uh, he's a fascinating character. I'm, I assume he's dead. Like, in real life, he's dead? Yeah, I assume he's probably dead by now. Uh, I don't know. I'll write a letter. Yeah. I mean, Gardars is in his 90s, but like I think he's the last French New Wave guy left. Uh, uh, based on this uh, photo that's uh, on Letterbox of Carlo Ponti, uh, yeah, he's long dead. Okay, uh, who else? Uh, I think Chris Marker's dead. I don't. I'm not sure. I don't know about Chris Marker at all. Truffaut, long dead. Yeah. Uh, um, Brawl's dead. Rivet. Uh, uh, Varda. Yeah. But Icon is hoping Varda would outlive. Um, Recently. Uh, I mean, she should have. Yeah. Okay, Chris Marker. In fact, in fact I wish I wish they had died together. Like uh, at the, uh, I'm not gonna spoil that. Anyways, to you know, both one of them getting shot and then they both fall off a waterfall. <laughs> okay. 
Chris Marker died 2012. Oh, okay. Okay, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure, like pretty much like pretty much all of them. Um, Jacques Demy died in the 80s or 90s. Yeah, very young. None of the Italian directors are alive, are they? Uh, the Seeker died in the 70s. So did, um, uh, uh Lu Luciano. Uh, we know Pasolini, obviously. Visconti. He died. Uh, who else? Uh, Rossellini uh, died in the 70s. A lot of them died in the 70s or early 80s. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think uh, most Italians didn't really. Fellini, I think, what was like the last one left of that generation. Bava. Yeah, he worked himself to death, though. Mm. Yeah, cause like, yeah, he like he worked on and he worked with like uh, Argento on the last on early some early Argento stuff before he. Mm. I think he died during production of Inferno. Or like right after production of Inferno, huh? something like that. Which we are, which, uh, yeah. Uh, are we gonna we cover any uh, uh, Argento movies? We have. Alive? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I well his last few movies I try to forget he he did. If we were still doing the damn vampire podcast, we definitely have to do this version of Dracula because I'm just like morbidly curious. I saw it once and I'm good. Oh, okay. But uh, yeah, we're doing Deep Red and maybe Tenebrae because there's a Shallow special down the road that I have to talk to Melanie about what movies to pick for that actually. Cool. So yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll be on that one. But uh, yeah, definitely Deep Red. We'll, we'll, because that's one I, that's like the one from the Golden Period I have not seen. Mm. I, I think maybe Stendhal Syndrome could be interesting. The rape revenge movie he did, starring his daughter, who gets raped in the movie, which is, I'm not saying it, it's creepy. I'm just saying like that's a interesting thing to do, to cast your daughter in that role. He has no problem with his daughter being penetrated on screen. I mean, yeah, m both, both by men geni men's genitalia and uh, weapons. He, he's, she's an, he considers her an actress, I guess. But yeah, like, a, trying to like separate that kind of thing for I, I can't imagine yeah. being in that situation yeah, I, I, and being okay. I'm not trying to be a prude, but like your own daughter in that type of role, that's weird. I'm gonna. I, I would be like Jack Palance <laughs> if I saw my own daughter. <laughs> That's my daughter. I can't. Oh, why did I film that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this what came out sixty three. I don't remember. I I recommend some stuff in the first half. I don't remember what it was. I think a couple books. Sixty three. This is not one we've talked about. Uh no, I'm surprised. I'm. Curious what you're gonna oh. do. Oh, we did talk. We we covered high and low, and that comes on sixty three. But I don't remember what we were talking about. And detect Detective Bureau two three go to hell bastards. Yeah, which is super fucking fun if you haven't seen that. Joe Shishido. He like Joe Shishido sings and dances. <laughs> it's great. 
Yeah. Super fun. Yeah. Um, I, let, me, let me see. Um, right. I watched uh, uh, Elia Kazan's movie, America, America. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is... I don't. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast, but it is. It's an immigrant story, but m- most of it is about the man just trying to get out of the country that he's in, and it is. It is a heart wrenching story because he he keeps trying to make it, and things you know he'll trust somebody and he'll be betrayed or he'll make something that seems like a, an easily avoided mistake, but you can understand why the the character of uh, Stravos does it. And it's... You you have the empathy for him, and when, when he finally... To spoil it, when he finally makes it and starts going, it's like, I don't know if America's going to be better, but Jesus, I'm glad you're not where you were anymore. Hmm. Oh, uh, it like it begins with him losing a fucking all his money, you know, the the money that was going to be his life, and having to make something after that. Uh, dealing with the economic crisis we are in in the world right now, I I don't. It, it's kind of a hard thing to take, but like it's it's supremely well acted, well shot, and, and well done story. Uh, what what else? Like I, I I don't know if you're familiar with the book, um, The Alchemist. Yeah, uh, sounds vaguely familiar. It's. I can't remember the name of the author, and I, I sh- let me just look it up here. I moved my keyboard because the cat was about to climb on it. I want to say it's Paulo Calejo. Alchemist. Yes, Paulo Coelho. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Uh, that that book is about uh I'm. What begins as a boy and becomes a man's journey to find his destiny. And it reminded me of that, except The Alchemist has certain aspects of, like, tragedy. But when you come out of the end of that, you you feel good about the character and what, what was accomplished in there. But it, in, in America and America, by the end, you because of how much struggle the man has to go through, like, him just finally getting on a boat and getting to go is is a relief, but in the same way that, like, somebody suffering of an illness finally passing is a relief. Like, we don't know if it's going to be better for him, but we're happy that he's not suffering anymore kind of thing. It's... Anyways, it's it's very, very good. Oh, okay. Let's see. Oh, we also did the third Shadow Warrior. I forgot about that movie. Yeah, that had that grisly um, eye-poking-out scene. Oh. Oh, I don't remember that at all. I have to rewatch this. Put it on the watch list. It's, um... hope you didn't hear that. I, I, I remember it being like a... 
Oh, what's that movie? The Kurosawa movie. Um, uh, Kagamusha, but better. Mm. What was the one about the the gangsters? Uh, has like a couple of bathhouse scenes, but I, I'm remembering them being like back to back. There's a there's a woman gangster who it was oh man, I'm. T- it's violent. I think it has Nakadai in it. Did, I, I don't have many more. Oh, bath. I, I'm imagining. Oh. I'm imagining two men. One of them has an eye patch back to back. Was. For, oh, is it the. What is it? It's the. Uh, that absurd title. The Scandalous Adventures of Burakai? No, no. It was. Something else. It was. It, it was violent, and it doesn't matter. It, 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 cut this part out. <laughs> I will. I'll ask you about it after we're done recording. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's probably good enough for recommendation. The the haunting, the Shirley Jackson adaptation, uh, that is much much better than the movie that came out in the nineties. Is also from this era, and it, that that's a delight. If you haven't watched that, like it, it is legitimately spooky at times. Uh, Black River. No, Black River is set in modern day, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No, this was this was one that was like gangsters with swords. Still, I'll I'll, I'll figure it out. All right. Anyways, yeah, uh, the haunting is really good. <laughs> All right, I'll take your word for it. That's been on my list of uh, eventually for a while. Okay, what? Uh, come. This comes out in August. I record uh, with Projection Booth on a bunch of African movies uh, in the next few weeks. So, uh,. You'll, I think those are coming out in August, I think. Or, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in August. So, um, yeah, uh, movies that I've already talked talked about on other shows, but it's a production booth, and it's one of my favorite podcasts ever. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I will gladly talk about I Am Not a Witch again, and Tukibuki again, uh, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, production booth, I'll be on that. And, uh, I record for, uh, the Mustachioed Podcastio, and, uh, me and Daniel are going to talk about Murder Unincorporated, a, uh, super fun Yakuza comedy from, I think, actually from 63, I think about it, with Joe Shishido, and it's like, what if Batman 66, but it's, but it's like a Toei, not Toei, it's a Nikatsu, um, Yakuza comedy. And it's super fun with wacky characters and wha- and dumb gags and shit like that. It's 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 uh, I think a great time. And that's cool. Uh, my grumpire might be out by then. Maybe I don't know. On on movie I don't like Mandy compared to movie I do like. Uh, I saw the devil. So that was a a fun chat. And, uh, what else? That's an, that's an unfair comparison. That's, once again, you're comparing apples and staircases there. 
No, I, no, no. I saw the devil. You were saying, right? Yeah, they're both simple, uh, generic plots about revenge and losing a woman. <laughs> I saw the devil is like a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece. <laughs> I, l- I love this scene where the guy's like, <laughs> like, like he broke my balls, and then the piece like, how did they? How did he break your balls? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that movie's so funny. So, uh, when it really needs to be, uh, and uh, other stuff. I'm recording. I, I'm gonna be real busy in the next few weeks. Is what I'm getting at, as of this recording. So, yeah, maybe stuff will be out. Maybe not. Uh, uh, J Dog, you. No, no, I don't have anything outside of the the podcast we're we're doing here at the moment. But I'm I'm trying to, I'm constantly trying to cook up new ideas. Uh, you know, nothing, nothing. Everything that I announced previously is now a dead idea in the water at the moment, okay. unfortunately. But that's that's okay. I'm not discouraged. I'm All right. Eventually, I'm going to find where my niche is, and I think it might be in full frontal nudity comedies featuring men's penises, but okay. my partner doesn't want me to do that. Uh, well, unfair. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, uh, download the file for that movie we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. You have to, because I got the email saying you didn't download it yet. Nope. Doing it now. Okay, good. Because uh, that that's the only way you can watch it with subtitles. Because it's kind of hard to get... Well, there's a DVD out there that's like 100 bucks now. And uh, hopefully Cartoon will put it out. Because it's sometimes on Cartoon Channel. And it's a Simbin movie. So uh, I think they might actually do a, like a Blu-ray fans release in the future. I just don't know mm. when they will. Uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, the next episode is going to be yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Uh, the Sika rom-com trilogy, uh, anthology, uh, with Marcello and Sophia Loren. It's, you get to see the full range of Marcello from, like, sleazy guy who's a cartoon character to sleazy guy who's subdued and cool. <laughs> and Sophia Loren is, uh, uh, incredible in it as well, but. Uh, mm-hmm. I really like it. I don't know if it's a popular opinion to like that movie, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Marcello. We're finally gonna get to some Marcello, which has been sorely, uh, sorely uh, been overlooked so far. Yep. That's it, and. Uh, if you, if you want to hear about Marcello, you could just listen to the Please Don't Send Me Into Outer Space episode about the 10th victim back in the day. Yeah. And listen to me on Movies from Hell on uh, uh, Elio Petri. A lot of Marcello talk in that one. Mm-hmm. Generic opinion, but he's my favorite Italian actor. He's just the best. I love Marcello so much. Yeah, I get it. My favorite actor is Bridget Bardot's butt. Oh. Wait, Jesus! I I gotta stop saying sexist things. I'm sorry. <laughs> my favorite Mexican actor is Anthony Quinn. Yes, uh, my favorite is Charles. Uh, wait, wait, what was his name? Anthony Quinn actually was Mexican. I should clarify. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was I was going to yeah, talk about how yeah, uh, Anthony, Charlton Heston. Yeah, he he passed for white, but like actually was like uh from like I believe he actually is from Mexico. Well, like Linda Carter. Hey. No, like like he like his family actually is Mexican. Like Anthony Quinn is well, legit. Like not uh like not not not. not it's, Never mind. Oh, not even not even half. He's just yeah. Like, yeah, I think yeah. he actually is fully Mexican. You look up his real name. I can't remember. Lin- Linda Carter is half Mexican. She changed her name. Oh. Never knew that. I know. Yeah. Stop recording now. The show can be found on Twitter at Piano Player Pod. Our email is still highlowpod at gmail.com. You can find a show on Spotify, Podbean, and various other places where you can find podcasts. Our intro music is by Vivian Fop, and our cover art is by Sarah Roberts. You can find her art, sarahkathleenroberts.com. And thank you for listening.